Welcome to Socialism for All Office Hours. So we're doing a live stream here at twitch.tv slash socialismsforA. The date is July 25, 2023. And uh, yeah, we've got uh, about three dozen people in the chat right now. And it's time to stream. Basically during these Office Hours streams, um, we just kind of chat about what's new on the channel or anything else that the chat wants to bring to the discussion. Um, I don't do a ton of prep for these streams. In other words, they're not like the numbered live streams where I will clip articles and kind of prepare a whole thing, you know, song and dance for people. Um, <clears throat> they're ways to just do live streams, these office hour streams, with just whoever wants to drop into the stream, within reason, and uh, yeah, talk about what's been posted in, since the last stream and whatever else is on your mind as far as current events or just general questions about socialism, thoughts on life if it's not too uh, far from the topic of society, I guess, class struggle. All right. So uh, before we get started with anything else, let's thank the patrons. <clears throat> there we go. Um, whose names are about to be on the screen as soon as I can find what I did with the thing. There we go. Alright, thanks to the patrons. Patreon.com slash socialism for all. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month or more. This support is really vital. I appreciate it greatly. Um, we don't run ads or sponsorships or anything like that on the channel, so it's really through this Patreon that you're funding my ability to commit so much time to the channel. Um, our posting, usually I go a little bit um, lighter on the posting earlier in the month and then mid to late month I kind of ramp it up. That is true of this month as well as we'll get into with what's been posted on the channel recently. Um, but in any case, you know, I'm able to devote as much time as I do to this channel. Uh, in part because of the patrons. I mean, I would do some content even if nobody supported, but um, this amount of support really lets me spend hours and hours on it per week. So much appreciated. Again, patreon.com slash socialism for all. And as we switch back here to the regular screen that is just sort of the graphic I put up uh, during my commentary and talking, you'll see that something changed. Um, I took Twitter off. I actually quit Twitter for good um, and haven't posted since, like a week and a half ago, I think. It was before the X thing. As most of you may know, Elon Musk decided to rebrand Twitter as X.com. Incredibly fucking stupid idea. I think most people in the business world, other capitalists are looking, and just marketing people and stuff are looking at him like, what are you doing? Twitter did not need a rebrand. <laughs> it's uh, Musk's own actions that caused a lot of users and advertisers to flee the platform. So he's now trying to rebrand it. I mean, that's not the problem. He's trying to fix an unrelated problem that he caused by something that is probably brand suicide. You're gonna just introduce a completely generic um, name, X. That's the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard. But Elon Musk is basically, if you took your average 4chan asshole and just gave him a ton of money, no sense, no clue, nothing, just money. He's pretty much what you would get, I think. 
So there's a sort of plot twist there. Let me see if I can get the uh, graphic up on the screen. Basically, X is already taken. Now, where did I put this? Oh, so this was one of his posts about it. And soon we shall bid adieu to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds. So they've already um, replaced the Twitter bird with an X, which is already used by a lot of porn sites. And that's just not really the wisest move. But anyway, yeah, gradually all the birds. And I added gradually all the users and all the advertisers. But hey, you know, the man spent $44 billion um, to uh, rebrand, buy a website, and then start destroying it. Who knows why? They were trying to take the um, Twitter logo off of the building, which they rent. They don't own the building. Apparently, they weren't allowed to. The uh, biz building owner like called the cops on them. I mean, it's just nothing has been going right. But so here's the... Uh, it appears that Instagram and Facebook owner Meta holds the trademark for X as it relates to, quote, online social networking services, social networking services in the fields of entertainment, gaming, and application development. So, like, this whole thing, he owns X.com, which now points to Twitter, um, but it doesn't look like he has the legal right to use it in the context of a social media service. So it's just this um, comedy slash tragedy of errors. You know, there's a lot of really annoying things about Twitter. Um, <clears throat> but one of the good things is independent journalism. There were a lot of things during 2020, the BLM protests, that I just never would have seen. If it hadn't been for Twitter, the stuff I've reposted onto the Socialism for All channel, I never would have seen if it wasn't for the you know big horizontal network of people exchanging information on there. It's not perfect, nothing was gonna be perfect, but it was a resource that people were effectively using um, to share pieces of, you know, snippets from the class struggle that just weren't gonna get wide circulation otherwise. Anyway, um, so like I said, I have, uh, so he's, you know, getting into just one blunder after another there, but I did replace the Twitter uh, with Spotify and then I was very um, validated to see that this whole X rebranding thing, which I had no idea about. I was just done with Twitter. I was just done with it. Um, it was actually more, um, I mean, it, it, just, it had been building for a long time. If you listen to these live streams, you know that, uh, you know, using Twitter, trying to look for news and stuff like that to use in the live streams, uh, it's just kind of like being in a car crash. I mean, it was really draining me and I've, I've expressed that many times. But it's kind of like being in a car crash like 50 times an hour being on Twitter. It just kind of gets your, it's jarring. It just gets your adrenaline going. So anyway, I replaced it there. Uh, now the four links that are up are Patreon, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube, which are sort of the main things for posting. Uh, we're also on Blue Sky. I understand that uh, Blue Sky is still, Blue Sky for people who don't know is a Twitter alternative um, that doesn't have all the features of Twitter but a lot of the main ones. It's still in beta testing mode, so it's on invite-only status. Recently just gave away, they give users uh, an invite code once every two weeks, and I've helped uh, three communists to get on the site so far, so that's good. We're gonna try to turn that into, uh, have it so that uh, people think of Blue Sky and they go, oh yeah, that communist site that I like. 
that that would be ideal. So if you are a communist on Blue Sky, in these critical germinal days, try, uh, well, it's not tweeting over there, it's skeeting, which the, the site developers do not want people to use, but it's what everyone says. Anyway, skeet and reskeet communist content. Like, if you can keep it to 80-90% communist content, we really need to swing the timeline. Because right now, it almost feels like some kind of cringy dating app. Um, just lots of people posting lewd content and just sort of flirting. And it's like, okay, fine, but the draw for me to the bird app was the fucking news. So, like, yeah, we need to get some serious kind of left-wing class struggle content going. Fortunately, a lot of people are talking about the strikes, whether it's the writer's strike in Hollywood, the actor's strike that have now joined them, and then the Teamsters uh, UPS strike, which was threatened. And actually today, just by threatening the strike, that union, the Teamsters UPS union, was able to get what they wanted. And so I believe the strike has now been called off. So if you have a strong union, you can get what you want just by threatening the strike. And then beyond that, a level of union power that we haven't realized yet is you can actually be strong enough to kick the capitalists to the curb and just take over the industry in which you work, you know, and, and then the workers really do run it. You know, you can have a situation under capitalism, under capitalist ownership uh, of industry, where the workers, quote unquote, run things like the capitalists can't effectively discipline them. The workers kind of decide more. Um, but ultimately, I mean, in that case, even with the workers, quote unquote, running things, they don't actually quite, uh, you know, legally run them or anything like that. That is where an even stronger union combined with mass strikes and political strikes comes in. That's a level again of union power, union strength that the U.S. working class has not yet realized. And that's not yet realized throughout its whole history. Um, the union movement today overall, unfortunately, is very weak uh, compared to historical levels. We need to rebuild that. And we do see in the last few years a slight upsurge beginning to happen in the labor movement in terms of just union density, you know, the percentage of private sector workplaces that are unionized. Um, that needs to keep going up and they can't be, uh, you know, complacent. If you can get the numbers up, but then not really be fighting that doesn't really mean anything. I think as conditions get tougher, uh, people are going to have to fight for more just to survive. And, you know, you can get some militant class struggle going. But we've got to really rebuild these unions. Uh, it's, it's one of the highest priorities, if not the absolute highest priority. Because we can study the history of Marxism and the philosophy of it and the economics of it. If you don't have a strong, organized, militant labor movement, then you have no way of actually effecting uh, workers' power. That's where it comes from. And that's also, you know, we can scratch our heads and wonder, why isn't there a better vanguard? Why aren't people supporting le or forming left-wing political parties or a party or, you know, a, a congress of parties, something like that? Well, it's because people are still class unconscious. They haven't gone through the crucible of struggling and that's, you know, you can get some class consciousness from studying books and studying history. And that's important because we need the theory to inform our practice and vice versa. You know, this is scientific socialism. You study, you hypothesize, you experiment, 
and then you revisit your hypothesis and develop a theory out of all that practice and experimentation, uh, experimental observation. Uh, and in, in this way, we pave a path to the seizing of power, control over industry and of uh, power over the state as well, conquest of state power. Both those things are key, but people, you know, without good struggle, you don't get a good vanguard. Vanguard just being that portion of the working class, which is most class conscious. It's a relative term. Some people like anarchists uh, wrongheadedly view the term vanguard as like elitist and they refer to quote vanguardists. It's just a simple fact. Some people in the working class are less class, class conscious. Some are moderately class conscious. Some are very class conscious. So you have your sort of backward masses, the middle masses, the advanced masses, and the vanguard of the people, you know, who are just, you know, they're labor leaders, they're, they're people who have led struggles, studied economics, studied politics, you know, looked at the history of imperialism and, and everything over time. Um, <clears throat> but your vanguard grows in numbers and in strength with struggle. And so we, we need the labor movement to um, kick back into high gear and for it to be militant, anti-capitalist, radical, not co-opted, not just fighting for a fair day's wage, but fighting for real worker power. We have to get rid of capitalist control of industry and, uh, and, and of the state. So, um, you know, right now the capitalists as a class rule society. Um, there needs to be a revolutionary change. Workers need to rule society. Revolution, uh, a change in which class rules society. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to build a lot of strength to do that. And when we're looking at, you know, 10, 11% unionization in the U.S. Uh, labor movement, you know, in, in the U.S. workforce generally, that's really insufficient. So we can sit here and, um, you know, discuss history and study theory. And indeed, we do need to prepare the ground for people to come in, as more and more workers will do, as their conditions become desperate and they really start out of desperation looking for solutions we need to have uh you know education and an organization available for people to to pick up and run with but it is a bit of a waiting game uh for now i mean we do the agitation it's not like just purely passive waiting we do the agitation and we do the education that we can but i say it's waiting because um, it is a numbers game. Until the numbers get up, a lot of this remains somewhat hypothetical. So anytime that you see labor news, you know, no matter what sort of social media you're on or with people in real life, you know, share that news, bring it up, talk about it, make propaganda about it, spread, you know, whether it's images or whatever, celebrating strikes and unionization, spreading information on how to start unions, which we have a few guides on the channel, as you know, to how to organize, um, that's really critical. That's like the foundation of the socialist movement, and it is really currently lacking. There's a number of reasons for that that we've discussed uh, over you know live streams and over the three and a half years that we've been doing this channel. Labor law, for example, is very skewed in the United States against workers and in favor of employers. That's not to say every law or that there's no legal protections. I mean, you have the legal right in the United States to form a labor union. That's a protected right. There's a concept called protected concerted activity, 
which is if you're fighting for better conditions, not just for yourself, but for at least one other coworker as a group, it's considered protected concerted activity. If your boss fires you for it, you're um, entitled to back pay. It's an unfair labor practice. So, um, you know, people need to know their rights and, and to spread information about that. Uh, and as we get those numbers up and people, you know, fight in an organized, effective manner, that's when you'll see the left politics um, coming together. And in the meantime, you know, we're going to get kind of goofy stuff like Cornell West uh, looking like the, you know, so far the presumptive candidate for the biggest um, kind of left party in the U.S., the Green Party U.S. His only challenger in the Green Party primaries, which aren't technically taking place until next summer. So I mean, we got a whole year to go. I do hope that somebody, a labor leader, somebody comes along and uh, challenges West because I, I think that that's, he's not really the most, um, the best candidate that the left uh, should be able to come up with at least as a representative, you know, and, and the bourgeois elections. I had some weirdo on Blue Sky, um, like aggressively, you know, quote tweet in a hostile way uh, because I had mentioned the bourgeois elections. I said something effective as a communist, I think that the Green Party U.S. should be able to come up with a better candidate than Cornell West, uh, or at least needs to be able to develop this capacity in a rapid manner. But um, that being said, this was in response to something Status Quo posted about uh, Cornell West going on the Anderson Cooper show and, you know, Democrats freaking out. Um, in the name of democracy, they're freaking out over candidates entering a free election. It's just astounding. But Anyway, um, you know, while I don't think Cornell West is the best candidate that the left could come up with, and I actually think he's a step backward from Bernie Sanders, for all of the flaws of Bernie Sanders, I actually think West is kind of a step backwards. Um, I still appreciate the Democrats freaking out, you know, for, for a reason like this. Somebody was like, this is opportunist, don't be this person. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Weird shit going on out there, people. So, anyway... Um, those are some thoughts off the top of my head. So Blue Sky and Mastodon, that's where I'm posting now. Uh, pinned Twitter post is really just a link to the other places that I am online, Reddit and SoundCloud and uh, all that other stuff. Um, so before we get into the chat or anything like that today, let's uh, see what has been posted on the channel recently. So we did do the office hours streams <clears throat> from uh, June 22nd and July 8th. Those were posted uh, about two weeks ago. I also reposted Lenin's What is to be Done, major text, almost seven hours long. It's in the Basic Marxism-Leninism Study Guide playlist. By the way, if you're somebody who's new to the channel and new to Marxism and you don't know where to begin reading, go to the Playlists tab at the Socialism for All YouTube. Also up on the SoundCloud, we have some pinned lists, although really just the, they only let you pin uh, four and I just have the basic Marxism-Leninism playlist. I haven't come up with my own recommended reading list, but for now, we do have a number of recommended reading lists and syllabi from parties uh, that they recommend. Like, if you're going to join their party, what do they want you to read? We have Hakim's basic Marxism-Leninism reading list, the Marxist-Leninist reading hub curriculum, Paulette Sturm International's recommended Marxism-Leninism uh, reading list, what else do we have? The Basic Marxism-Leninism Study Guide, <clears throat> which is from Movimiento Anti-Imperialista, MAI. 
This is posted on our communism on Reddit. This is actually what kind of <laughs> forms the backbone of this channel. Um, there's only 26 texts on that, and I still have three to go. Um, in the meantime, we've read literally over like 300 other texts, but that formed the uh, skeleton for us to branch out into many other texts was that basic basic Marxism-Leninism study guide and what is to be done is on there. Um, there's also the American Party of Labor's reading list. There's uh, a few other things. So anyway, if you're looking for something to just get started with, look at the playlists tab and then just scroll down. The first thing is Marxist-Leninist reading lists, party curriculum syllabi, and other recommended theory collections. I want to mention that I refer to this channel and myself as, well, I'm a U.S. American, that's just where I was born and where I still live, um, studying Marxism, but specifically anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism. People who are very new may not be familiar with the term revisionist, but this is um, pretty much since the beginning of Marxism. There have been distorters of Marxism that have tried to revise major theses, such as revolution or class struggle or whatever, um, about you know Marx and Engels' core writings. They've tried to revise them. So revisionism is um, major departures, critical departures that completely undermine Marxism or Marxism-Leninism. And so what, what is anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism? So there are a number of major turns in the 20th century uh, where people feel that uh, you know, the movement went revisionist or that socialist projects went revisionist and departed from the um, path of building socialism and, and using Marxist-Leninist techniques and theory and you know, applying what, what would actually work. So widely regarded that the USSR after Stalin went revisionist. This was modern revisionism or Khrushchevite revisionism. And, uh, you know, of course, Trotskyists will consider um, Stalin to be a departure, major departure, even counter-revolution. Uh, we're not Trotskyist here. And then um, also after Mao, or even in the last few years of Mao in the 1970s, that uh, China, with its uh, capitalist reforms and opening up, in uh, 1978 in particular, went revisionist under the rule of Deng Xiaoping. You might see online as Dengism. It's actually pronounced Deng, but um, yeah. So there's, there's a couple of different turns. So some of the major anti-revisionist currents are Marxism-Leninism-Maoism. Um, I don't consider myself currently a Marxist-Leninist-Maoist, although I, I, I have yet to read any MLM pieces that I really seriously disagree with, so I'm very friendly to it. Um, you also have something like Enver Hoxha, considered anti-revisionist of Albania, who first criticized the USSR for being revisionist and then later criticized um, late Mao, post-Mao China for, for being revisionist as well. So there are some differences between, for example, like a, a Hojaist perspective and a, uh, an MLM perspective. Uh, that's something that I'd like to get into evaluating a little bit more closely later in the channel. There's still a lot of readings that I'd like to get to first. But yeah, so um, anti-revisionism matters. There's a lot of people who do uphold um, you know, China's capitalism, China's very dubious capitalism, allowing large amounts of capitalism um, you know, on a very long-term, uh, multi-decades, half-a-century basis. A lot of people, I think, rightly 
are very skeptical of that and um, and so on whereas a lot of uh, Marxist Leninists who you know, have not adopted a specifically anti-revisionist position I mean they might consider themselves anti-revisionist in one way or another uh, do not criticize China in that way and, and tend to be very very uncritical of modern China in a way that is I mean almost comical sometimes but anyway what is to be done I was talking about I reposted what is to be done with a minor edit very slight edit you probably wouldn't notice it but there was something I just wanted to um, edit that always uh, bugged me in that audiobook and although YouTube has an online editing feature uh, this was over the length limit, so I actually had to uh, do it offline and then re-upload, and anyway, that's why that got posted. Uh, what else? So we've been doing a series on socialism and religion. So the texts <clears throat> in that series so far, some better known, some lesser known. Engels' Continental Socialism, Marx's Anti-Church Movement Demonstration in Hyde Park, Engels' Bruno Bauer and Early Christianity, Engels' The Book of Revelation, Engels, the program of the Blancist fugitives from the Paris Commune. Engels and pre-renegade Karl Kautsky, Lawyers' Socialism, an excerpt from that. Rosa Luxemburg's An Anti-Clerical Policy of Socialism. And Rosa Luxemburg's Socialism in the Churches. I have three more texts I plan to put up. Bertie recorded one of them. I just didn't have time to upload it yet. Um, all three of them are from Lenin in the late uh, 1900s, so like 1909 and, and into the teens. A few more texts about religion and the class struggle. And as I said at the end of the last one that is on the channel right now, Socialism in the Churches by Rosa Luxemburg, which, by the way, is a fantastic hour-long exposition of the history of the Christian church way back to the early days, you know, like 100 AD, like very, very early Christians, um, which Engels also covers in Bruno Bauer and Early Christianity in the Book of Revelation. Anyway, she takes it from, you know, the very early days of Christianity and its various mutations over the centuries into um, the very, very oppressive and, and exploitative uh, force that it became under feudalism and uh, continues to be in capitalism. So, yeah, um, it is a somewhat secondary question, religion, but it is an important one. I mean, Marx had, uh, these weren't the first texts that we've done. On the subject of religion, there was also, by Lenin, um, Socialism and Religion, The Attitude of the Workers' Party to Religion. Uh, there's also Marx's uh, very famous quote about a religion being the opium of the masses or the opium of the people. Uh, that's from the introduction to a contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. I love that text. It's from 1844 by Marx. And there's a lot of religion apologists that tr try to take one isolated line from that and say that, uh, you know, Marx acknowledges that religion is like the sigh of the oppressed, but the overwhelming thrust of that text is that um, workers must shake off religion in favor of philosophy if they're to, you know, become fully upright and fight for their humanity. That's like really the overall thrust of the text. And <clears throat> while there is that one line in there, you know, he's acknowledging people aren't being religious, um, or many people at least, aren't being religious just because they're purely ignorant. It's because oppression and exploitation are hard to bear. However, 
um, until you know we uh, it's religion that provides a kind of false happiness an illusory happiness and what socialism is demanding is um, real happiness you know so 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 the people don't need religion and as I was commenting at the end of socialism in the churches uh, I I've found that even Lenin, and this stood out to me because I don't usually find Lenin um, in any way not consistent, but uh, even Lenin, who, you know, draws a very clear picture with, um, as far as policies of religion, that um, religion, as far as the state is concerned under socialism, is to be a private and personal matter. Uh, that said, socialism is also for complete separation of church and state, that churches, you know, religious institutions and authorities get no privileges, no funding, nothing like that. So it's just a personal um, matter. In practice, religion has also been very counter-revolutionary. It has been political in that way, and various actions have been taken by socialist authorities with good reason against religious bodies that are actually organized in society. Even if they're not getting funding from the state and things like that, they can still pose a counter-revolutionary danger. So there is that. And, you know, as I mentioned, I don't know if this is just um, sort of the difference of the rhetoric that had to be used in the 1900s and 19-teens versus, you know, what may be more common knowledge today, a century later, uh, especially after, you know, the, uh, the demonstrated history of religious struggle, or at least religious veiled struggle, against um, socialism in, in any form or even progressive movements in most forms. But um, anyway, there, so while that's the policy in relation to the state, uh, they make clear that in relation to the party, to the Communist Party, to the Workers' Party, religion is not a private matter. That, that actually is very much the concern of the party, which is Marxist, which means materialism, which means a positive hostility towards religious superstition, and idealism and illusions of all kinds because that really is going to cloud your thinking um, when it comes to social matters you can't in other words both believe in material rational explanations for what happens in this physical world which is materialism and also that immaterial beings rule and influence the world those are logically incompatible concepts but um you know, there's this point made that they would let people join the Workers' Party uh, who had religious views as long as they weren't too loud about them and they agreed to spread the, uh, you know, Marxist doctrine and, and materialism and things like that. It makes you wonder, though, at what point, and again, this is a secondary or even lesser question, but it makes you wonder at what point are people really still holding on to those views, outwardly agreeing to... Um, uh, you know, uh, promote materialism and things like that, but, uh, you know, harboring counter-revolutionary idealist superstitious sentiment, um, you know, that they're, that they're concealing. So that to me is a piece that stood out for its sort of lack of consistency and you get it, but I think that this is a question that is interesting to me because it's one of the ones that I don't think um, socialism has fully solved in like a truly, truly satisfying way. And to this day, you know, I think about 80% of people get this right. Uh, there's about 20% of people who seem to be very touchy about it, 
really do want to import their religious sentiment into Marxism in some way. And um, I don't know, so it, it continues to be a problem. And they'll make arguments like, uh, you know, coming down too hard on religion just gives fodder to the right-wingers. Um, you know, this is in some ways no different from like, you know, we just can't make the right-wingers mad that you see in so many other kinds of opportunist, you know, nationalist sentiment, anti-bigotry sentiment, and so on. So to me, the, that's like a little bit of a gray area that I'm still looking for um, a good theoretical and practical uh, resolution to. Uh, just a topic of interest to me before I was interested in socialism, uh, was interested in, you know, philosophical and, um, you know, <laughs> for me, it was kind of um, becoming interested in sociology, which I really didn't know existed for, you know, uh, it's not like a real popular topic um, in the U.S. in general. I really never heard of uh, sociology at all in high school. So it's like if you're interested in social problems, social questions, you know, you're looking at philosophy, you're looking at religion, you're looking at political science. Um, so, you know, it's it's of uh, some outstanding interest to me. Well, how do socialists um, <clears throat> answer this, this question? And uh, so that's why we've been exploring that at such length. Let me take a sip here. Anyway, um, like I said, three more Lenin texts on this little mini-series. Then we're switching, I think, into a uh, fairly long Rosa Luxemburg. Going to do a whole lot of Luxemburg readings, most of them quite short, uh, starting with uh, Reformer Revolution. So anyway, that's what's new as far as the videos, what's new on the community tab. We've got, I did write a little essay about basically what I was just talking about, about religion. Um, also did some criticism of Cornell West, I mean, this was part four, basically, in an ongoing criticism of what I said before. Just like, really, is Cornell West the best that the Green Party can come up with? Please, you know, these left celebrity vanity campaigns. It's just, um, we need to do better. <clears throat> we probably will do better, again, with a stronger labor movement, generating labor leaders who historically have been socialist leaders and things like that. In the meantime, I think we're in somewhat sorry shape and you know just the green party being the, which i i think has potential to be a member in you know a kind of congress or i've referred to a left coalition I was talking with a comrade the other day that said coalition is probably you know and and why a coalition in the first place because none of these parties green communist party usa socialist party usa psl whatever none of them are big enough on their own i don't think any of them are the vanguard party not all of them are trying to be the vanguard party but even the ones that are trying to be a vanguard type party none of them are big enough it probably would take some sort of collaboration and i've used the uh, term and hashtag left coalition to try to promote this idea i have um, also talked about this in previous live streams if you go back and look at that but i was talking with a comrade the other day that was suggesting the term congress instead of coalition because it implies more of a sort of um strict internal governance, which in fact was what I had intended when I, and in my discussions of uh, the left coalition idea, that you would have an internal governance to this coalition, that it would be kind of a parliamentary style thing where the different parties send representatives and things like that. But, you know, left Congress or 
you know, Workers Congress or something like that. Um, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, I do think that the Greens could potentially, you know, have a place in something like that. Uh, it's kind of up to them. What do they want their party to be? Do they want it to just be a ballot line <clears throat> that they loan out to left celebrities for you know protest van protest vote vanity campaigns, or do they want to you know highlight the on the ground work that the party's doing? Because I know in the past, for example, um, Sherry Honkala, uh, H O N K A L A, was I think the two-time. Green Party vice presidential candidate in 2012 and 2016, I think. And, you know, she's a anti-poverty activist who has done kind of like real work on the ground. And um, anyway, you know, people have been a part of this party and have tried to build it up and have tried to do real work in, in the communities, making the party a part of working people's lives there. I mean, ultimately what the, the party needs, like any left party, or would-be left party, is closer ties to the labor movement and daily organizing in every working-class community in the country around fundamental issues that people are facing. What you're getting instead is the potential for these kind of PR stunt, throwaway, self-congratulatory media hype campaigns, which may result in higher speaking fees and book sales for West or whoever it is, but that kind of thing is divorced from most people's reality. It's alienating to behold, and it's probably likely to be met with contempt. So, yeah, I mean, you know, those things rely on sort of left Twitter, progressive Twitter, the Kyle Kalinske set, the people who watch, you know, the Hill Rising, stuff like that. As one person summed it up, people whose entire political education was reading, uh, um, uh, what's the name of the book, the Chomsky thing, um, Manufacturing consent. There we go. Screwed that one up good. Anyway, yeah, what that's probably going to do, rather than building something up from the grassroots of America, is going to attract uh, like flies, you know, grifters of the Jimmy Dore uh, type. And we already see that happening with the Cornell West campaign, and that's not a very good thing. So again, your party needs ties to the masses and the labor movement, organized labor. In particular, um, we have to pry labor away from the Democratic Party, and those that won't be pried away from the Democratic Party have to be labeled as sellouts and, and unions that don't really fight for the people. So anyway, um, what else did we have on here? I do encourage people to read that. It's the one that starts with Cornell West should be running in the Democratic, primary, uh, Democratic Party primary because he sucks, just like any other Democrat. Anyway, um, a few days ago, I posted a piece about Eliezer Yudkowsky's TED Talk, which was like two weeks ago, uh, his TED Talk, that is, and talking some more about AI. We're going to be doing another stream on Thursday, so that's the 27th, same time as always, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. GMT UTC, and I actually want to read some more things about this. We covered, I think it was in live streams like 97, 98, or 99, some of the most recent live streams, um, things about uh, existential threats from AI. Of course, in the short term, AI is not that developed. GPT-4 shows um, concerning advances, like leaps in performance over GPT-3, which caught safety experts such as Eliezer Yudkowsky by surprise 
and caused him to sound the alarm that by the time we get to GPT-6, um, this thing could have capabilities that would just not be controllable anymore. In the meantime, though, the GPT-4 that we're facing is uh, already um, somewhat, you know, human level at least, although much, much, much faster than human level in terms of intelligence. And that's a topic in the Hollywood writer's strike because already the AI technology is being used to um, disrupt, you know, a, a number of tasks that are already going on. A GPT-5 would be able to be uh, much, much more, more disruptive in terms of putting people out of work. Of course, under capitalism, uh, you know, that leisure <laughs> gets only um, distributed to the people who own the technology, which is the capitalist class, and the rest of us are going to be, um, you know, fighting over garbage fires, and it's not a good thing. But anyway, there is this question of the long-term development of AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is superior to human in every way, in every measurable metric of human intelligence, it would be able to outperform. Um, and I've linked things about this on the in the past. It is something that I think is hugely um, concerning. And if people aren't trying to, you know, I saw some people in the comments rather stupidly, I thought, just saying, oh, it's just a tool. No, you're not understanding what we're talking about. AI is fundamentally different from any other technology in that other technologies, a hammer, you know, a hydraulic press, don't really make decisions. This could, and we're on the threshold of it being able to make more intelligent decisions uh, in pursuit of various goals more effectively than the average human and possibly of, you know, any human, uh, that no human innate natural intelligence would be able to uh, outthink it. That puts us in a literally historically unprecedented situation, and we have no idea what would happen after that. I will read this essay as well as some follow-up texts in the uh, in the next live stream, which will be, I think, a numbered live number 101. Uh, yesterday we posted something about uh, this is from this week in Virology, Microbe TV, another YouTube channel, discussing why RFK Jr.'s main talking points about vaccines, as shared on the Joe Rogan Show and elsewhere, are factually wrong. And uh, that about brings us up to date. So we'll jump into the chat in, in a minute. I just wanted to say about the AI, you know, people saying, oh, it's just a tool, like it's chatbots aren't going to like ruin the world. I mean, you just didn't read what I wrote. You just didn't read what I wrote because I accounted for all of that. And that's really not the concern uh, that anyone is saying. No one thinks chat GPT is going to like turn into the Terminator. The problem is that GPT-4 showed wild advances over GPT-3, GPT-5 um, could show, you know, I've seen papers that argue that what seem to be emergent capabilities are not actually emergent capabilities. I think this may be the wrong question because the question is at the end of the day, what can it do? But um, anyway, the, the point is that you throw enough tech into the AI hardware suddenly, boom, it can do things like learn languages it wasn't taught that no one predicted and we have no um, understanding of why it's doing the things that it's doing. So, you know, we know that it, it lies to people. It returns information that it, it knows is incorrect and we know is incorrect. 
Um, we still don't really know whether it's doing that deliberately all the time and so on. So there's just a lot of things. And you know the capitalists will be putting that stuff into critical things. I mean, uh, Elon, Elon, quote, I got rid of the bots, Musk, over on Twitter, part of this new X rebranding marketing push, which he wants um, to replace banking functions. It's this wild pipe dream he's got. Um, probably it's going to wind up in bankruptcy, but uh, he, uh, his new X, Twitter X thing, is going to be driven by AI. That's Elon Musk, who's one of the signatories of the don't develop AI anymore, which is a bunch of, you know, horseshit. It's like completely shallow and insincere. The new Twitter X is going to be run by AI. That's one of his uh, marketing pushes for it. So, yeah. Anyway, as somebody said uh, on Blue Sky, no, I won't be sharing my banking information with the Death Threats website. All right. Enough of that. Let's get into the chat. We do have uh, about three dozen people here. And let's see what they are talking about. Uh, I had to stop my listening of Stalin's Concerning Questions of Leninism to listen to the stream. That's a banger. I'm happy to have a new stream. Well, welcome, and I'm glad that you are uh, learning about socialist communist history. That's great. I'm goofing off at work. That's a good thing to do at work. Uh, remember, you know, capitalism, as we discussed in the audiobook of uh, Value, Price, and Profit, also published, I think, in German as Wages, Price, and Profit, by Marx, which is now one of the pinned texts for people who are subscribed to the channel. Um, capitalism, uh, where do profits come from? Profits in capitalism come from hidden, unpaid work that's built into the workday. In essence, um, in order to get the privilege of generating enough value to pay your wages that you can cover your basic living expenses as a worker, the trade-off is you have to work unpaid time uh, for the capitalist. What do I mean unpaid time? Well, we're not talking about wage theft in the strict sense, like you worked four hours, like you punched in at 8 a.m., punched out at 12 noon, and you only got paid for three hours. That's not what we mean. It means that the hourly wage you got paid was far short of the value that you generated. And so, but those are the, that's the price of admission. Those are the terms of admission into any capitalist workplace that you have to give the capitalist free product that you just don't get compensated for. So yeah, goof off at work rather than, you know, after you've um, covered the, uh, the basic amount of labor that you have to, the necessary labor that you have to perform to cover your basic expenses, you have no reason to do anything but goof off really. Uh, and that's the capitalist's problem at that point. Did you see Burkina Faso cutting ties with France? I thought I saw something about that a little while ago, although I have not seen any details yet. As I mentioned, I'm off the Twitter, so uh, I'm not drinking from quite as stout a fire hose as I was uh, news-wise right now, which is also why my mood is a bit more level. Twitter really can do a number on people's psychology, for sure. Um, but yeah, like I said, unfortunately, there's not as much... Whoa. <laughs> I almost uh, trip over my mouse. Um, 
Yeah, there's not as much left-wing news over on uh, Blue Sky, so more people have to get invite codes, and we got to change that. But no, I'm a little bit news deficient right now, making up for it in the audiobooks. But yeah, I find it telling that there was so much anti-Stalin propaganda. I can only assume that there was so much because he wasn't revisionist and had the power to destroy the Nazis. I'm really liking the Stalin stuff. Thanks, S4A. You know, I will say about Stalin, the mid-19, mid to late 1930s were a very turbulent time in the USSR, and I do think mistakes were made. They were trying to deal with um, a lot of different, very serious problems, which were dealt with. I do think some of the baby went out with the bathwater in some, in some cases. Um, this was, on the other hand, the first socialist state in history, and they were only about, you know, two decades into existing. So I think it's understandable that some mistakes were made. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I mean, so th there are people who have bones to pick with Stalin that conversely throw away the entire legacy of Stalin because, you know, something he didn't, uh, something they didn't like uh, was done during that time, even though, like, the overall project of the USSR was preserved, and so on. I think that there are valid criticisms, and I think that there's also lots of valid praise to be, um, you know, heaped in, in the situation that they were in massively underdeveloped industrially, uh, facing war, facing threat of more war. It was not the ideal time for development. Um, but like I said, I think at the same time, particularly like in the realm of science, there were some not so great things that got promoted and some great things that did get banned or suppressed. So, you know, it is a mixed bag, but overall, the bag remained in the end, which I think at that point was kind of the key thing. So yeah, I mean, and, and I think you can read, um, you know, Stalin doesn't present himself as a major theorist of Marxism-Leninism. As he himself says, he's just a student of Lenin and he hopes to be a worthy student. You know, Lenin died really young, uh, like I think he was 53, he was in his early 50s, um, and he died of uh, basically stroke-related complications. It was, my understanding is the same way that his uh, father died. So I guess it ran in the family. Very unfortunate. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm not saying that all of the problems would have been uh, averted had Lenin stuck around. I think that that's a mistake that people make. But it would have been interesting to see Lenin's perspective on, you know, the major crises that broke out, particularly in the 30s. Uh, I'm not saying that they would have been avoided, but I would have been interested in his position on uh, on some of that stuff. Because, you know, Trotsky in particular was a very major figure, and we will be doing a series of Trotsky versus Stalin um, type things with some Bukharin thrown in. And, you know, this the period of, of Stalin consolidating uh, power um, against, you know, a lot of the other old old Bolsheviks. And um, Trotsky, of course, was like the major figure uh, in the sort of anti-Stalin world there. And we will do, just to help people understand this better, you know, Trotsky's writings versus Stalin's perspective and, and writings from the same period. Uh, that'll be uh, probably not for a few months, but I actually finally lined up the texts in order. 
<clears throat> part of the issue there is Trotsky writes such fucking long texts. Like he he wrote a, a lot of very very long books, but trying to trying to pick through and and find the most critical ones. Um, but anyway, would have been interesting because Lenin started out extremely critical of Trotsky, who was a Menshevik and kind of just a wacky one at that. Um, you know, as late as 1914 and later, Lenin was writing kind of lengthy lengthy criticisms, really excoriating. Trotsky for just kind of general Menshevik bullshit. Uh, Trotsky did come over, as did some other Mensheviks like Kolontai, kind of late, um, 1917-ish, and, uh, you know, played, played a crucial role in the revolution, Trotsky with the Red Army, for example. Uh, and Lenin, of course, um, you know, found a lot more to praise about Trotsky at that time. That said, he did continue to criticize him. There's a couple of uh, significant pieces on Trotsky's mistakes. But it would have been interesting to see, uh, I think, Lenin's perspective on the 30s. Of course, we'll, we'll never really uh, get it. All right, anyway. Uh, big news just broke maybe two hours ago. Teamsters and UPS came to an agreement. Yep, mentioning that. Uh, my understanding is, is that the union got everything that they're asking for in the contract. But anyway, some things I wish would have been touched on more were things like the gig workers being contracted out and part-timers using their personal vehicles for deliveries. D deliveries. D deliveries? But it's still a massive win, and I'm proud of my fellow Teamsters, and it's a celebratory moment. Absolutely. You know, as the working class fights, again, out of desperation uh, for workers' power, we will see that power coming to the fore and it will spread like wildfire. So again, you know, if you're a friend of the working class, spread news on these victories, celebrate them in every way that you can. Insane that they had to do this much just to get fucking AC in their trucks. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's wild, wild situations that the company was putting them in. Meanwhile, Texas construction workers are losing water privileges. Yeah, I was watching a... Uh, there was a Democracy Now! video that YouTube was just recommending to me like every fucking time that I went on the site. Um, it's called The Heat Will Kill You First. It was like a 20-minute interview with a guy who wrote a book about climate change, a journalist covering climate change. They mentioned that in there, that there was a bill passed, that basically now um, local municipalities can't prevent companies from refusing to uh, give their workers... People are working in like 105 degree, 110 degree heat. They can't take water or shade breaks. People are going to die from that. So, yeah. A little bit of discussion here about the U.S. soldier uh, in the DPRK, North Korea. Uh, apparently, I, I didn't follow the details of that either. Apparently, there's not like a lot to hail there from a socialist point of view. He was kind of just like... Um, seeking refuge from something not not that good so I'm, I'm not sure I haven't really read the details on that yeah uh, x.com was Musk's first company before merging and uh, becoming part of the PayPal mafia internet history X apartheid history X there you go tragic comedy It can't be a coincidence that Musk's rival owns the X trademark. Yeah, there's something weird going on there between Musk and Zuck. 
And, um, like, they were talking about having, like, a cage match recently. This was, like, two weeks ago, maybe. They were talking about having a cage match. And then Jordan Peterson weighed in with, like, ooh, will they be nude and oiled up? It was like, aren't you the fedora guy? But, um, anyway... Who needs Twitter bots when people are paid to act like AI on TikTok? Yeah, I don't. I don't even go on TikTok. It's just I've I have enough to deal with. <laughs> I have enough to deal with without getting into like, as I've mentioned multiple times. I find TikTok videos just like sensory overload, information overload. Like because of the shorter um, duration of the videos, they're just overwhelming. It's like like I said, it's like you press a button, the wall goes down. And, like, somebody just throws shit at you for, like, two or three minutes straight, and then the wall goes back up. It's it's just unnerving. Like, I can't actually watch those and concentrate, focus on what's being said. It's it's just too much. So, yeah, i not a fan of that format myself. I also, if, if I may just take a moment, and of course I may, to just rant about YouTube shorts. Um, I hate how they loop, and you can't... Uh, tell sometimes until you're halfway through the second loop that it's looped. I don't like that you can't fast forward and rewind in them. I don't really like anything about them. Just make a fucking video. Like, I don't get this short form content so much. It's not sufficient time to really develop an idea. Um, I, I just find it irritating. It's part of things that are just more and more irritating to me about using the internet in the 2020s versus like even the 2010s so anyway i know that there's some good information on tiktok just wish it was in a different format personally i watched marianne williamson on hassan's stream oh boy yeah I, again like i said speaking fees and book sales marianne williamson is on a book tour Dis disguised as a presidential run. Uh, she was an absolute joke. I watched that piece on his YouTube channel and I don't know what was more silly. Her or the comments. Williamson 2024. But she's better than Joe Biden. Fucking like the you know a bug crawling across your carpet is better than Joe Biden. That doesn't mean she's a serious person or you know has any real political solutions to offer. I can't view Twitter because I don't have an account. Yeah, they also recently, this was after the bandwidth debacle earlier this month, they made it so that just like Facebook, you can't view pages without being logged in with an account, which is only going to kill the site more. So yeah. People I normally respect really seem to be on the Cornell West train. Well, it's a sign of political immaturity. This is the left not knowing its own strength, not knowing the stakes of the situation that they're in. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of naivete, I think, to get people <clears throat> on this very idealistic um, media grifter train like that. So, you know, when in the title of the, the Lenin book, quote, left-wing communism, left-wing being in quotes because it's not really left-wing, an infantile disorder, the infantile disorder means political immaturity. That's what it means. It means people who have not really thought through all of the problems and, and so on. 
And I think that that's, you have a very naive U.S. left at this point that thinks that, you know, getting general strike trending as a hashtag is like how you organize a general strike. Not even close. But that's kind of the, the place that we're in and will be in, again, until we actually have more people out there fighting battles, winning and or in the early days more likely losing them, and then licking their wounds, learning from their mistakes, looking to history and theory, which is exactly what I did. I was a little bit ahead of the curve as far as the labor revival and was getting into that sort of back in the occupied days. And I'm happy to see that going more mainstream now. But, you know, after going through that and wading through the sort of anarcho-communist stuff, which uh, I was just discussing this with somebody on Blue Sky, and they made a point to me, we're discussing like anarchism and anarcho-communism, and they made a point to me that anarcho-communism is, quote, great because it's uh, different, and this is like a Richard Wolff sort of talking point, it's great because it's different from the, quote, state communism that uh, there's so much propag Cold War propaganda against. And I said, yeah, but it's not really effective. <laughs> has no, like, real track record of working, which is why they didn't bother making propaganda against it. And really all that that means is, well, okay, so you got to have this ANCOM phase first before you realize that that's kind of futile and you start wondering, well, how do anarchists actually take power? And then you just either wind up reinventing Marxism or you just go back and read Marxism that you have to have this phase first just speaks to the fact of how effective the Cold War propaganda, anti-communist propaganda was that uh, people interested in communism have to have this half-communist phase, and it is literally half-communist, it's anarcho-communist. You have to have a half-communist phase for a few years before you can get to the real deal. You know, what if that wasn't the case? So I don't actually see that as a huge win. Um, you know, for people who are confused about that, the Marxist understanding of anarchism, and remember, anarchism is not new. It's as old as Marxism, and Marx and Engels criticized it at the time in the mid-19th century. Uh, you know, Proudhon, Bakunin, um, and so on, Kropotkin. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we have a, a thing up on the channel about um, the Bakuninists at work in Spain, how anarchists completely fucked up the circa 1870 um, revolution in Spain. And, um, yeah, the Marxist understanding is that anarchism is basically a petty bourgeois ideology that puts the individual above the class. In other words, Marx, Marxism does seek, as Stalin explains, in anarchism or, or socialism, um, Marxism does seek liberation of the individual, but through liberation of the class to which the individual belongs, the proletariat. Whereas anarchism does not do this and just seeks liberation of the individual and uh, hence petty bourgeois individualistic philosophy. But it makes sense that the U.S. is so riddled with anarchism and, and Western Europe as well, the advanced capitalist countries, because in, in those countries you have a bourgeoisified uh, population of mostly proletarians, U.S. is 90% plus proletarian, but who have false petty bourgeois consciousness that does not match their actual class status. So they have the class status of a proletarian, but they're carrying around the ideology of a different class, the petty bourgeoisie, because everybody thinks 
that they are uh, temporarily embarrassed millionaires, going to make it rich, or even if they don't think that, they're still thinking in the limited terms of sort of bourgeois individualism, but of course minus the money and the, the capital that actually goes with that class uh, status. So yeah, it makes sense that anarchism is so pervasive because petty bourgeois consciousness is very pervasive. That can be defeated through um, extensive labor organizing and so on <clears throat> as that, the class consciousness grows. But yeah, for the time being, but again, I don't consider it a win. I consider it sort of sickly half communist ideology. On a scale from one to 10 as an agitator, uh, how would you rate Michael Parenti. I don't know. I mean, I mainly know him as, as an author. I, I don't really like his speeches. I feel like um, he's sort of in his speeches putting on airs of, like, waving his arms around a lot, and it, it feels like a bit like a bit of a LARP, just his speech style. I think he was sincere in his socialism and in his scholarship and, and educational efforts about socialism. So I'm not trying to, um, you know, fight him on his politics. But it seemed to me like he was, I don't know, like trying to imitate Castro or something. And it just came off as kind of phony. Um, so, I mean, as an agitator, I don't know. Black Shirts and Reds, though, we did do on the channel with commentary. Uh, just got a comment. Somebody said it's the first audiobook they've ever actually finished in their life and the commentary helped them stay engaged. Some people don't like the commentary, and you know what? You're welcome to do. <laughs> First of all, here's a full refund, and second of all, um, that's just the way that we do them here. You're welcome to do them without commentary on your own channel if you would like, uh, but that's the way that we do them because it is more of a discussion group type of thing where we try to digest it, and, and I try to make it accessible to people who might just be jumping in on that. You know, there's this stereotype of theory of being dry, inaccessible, and, you know, just incomprehensible to people who uh, haven't been initiated into it. And I'd like to sort of provide that initiation wherever possible uh, in most of the texts, if not all of them. Sometimes I don't do comments, and I really wish people would stop commenting, uh, wish there was commentary in this one. Yeah, well, if I don't think of anything to say, then I don't say anything. You know, I don't force commentary for its own sake. I just want people to understand that. Um, if I think something speaks for itself, then I would be detracting from it by adding to it, if you get my meaning. So as an agitator specifically, I don't know if there's something specific you had in mind, but um, I mean, I think he wrote good books that are popular and have good information and are readable. So if you consider the books agitation, then I'd rate him pretty favorably. I mean, he's, he's you know, well known and I think generally well regarded um, for his work and I, I concur with that. I've never had Twitter so I didn't know you had to have an account to view. Well you didn't until uh, a few weeks ago. For what it's worth Parenti is partially responsible for one commenter becoming a socialist. Yeah absolutely. Uh, another commenter been loving this atheist stuff. I think it's important to understand you know and as I mentioned in the little essay you know, there's been a lot of backsliding into various kinds of you know, nationalism, sexism, bigotry of various kinds. Like, let's not put backsliding into like, oh yeah, religion's great, <laughs> you know, into our Marxism. That's um, not, again, it's not the primary thing, but it's that doesn't mean that you can just like let it go and take like anti-Marxist positions on it. 
you know, Lenin makes the point that we, we do need to fight it, not idealistically, but primarily material, materially by changing conditions. But there again, a contradiction there in it's also held that the party needs to be atheistic and materialist. Okay, well, I mean, unless we're expecting that to just sort of spontaneously happen, then, I mean, you, you do need to put propaganda out there um, in favor of that as well. But And I think it is that the, the balance was never gotten exactly right. Um, either that or maybe the balance was gotten right, but just too much attention was given to the people continuing to whine about it. Anyway... Like I said, we'll, we'll continue with that. Uh, I got three more texts and then we're changing topics. So, you know, if you've loved it, good. There's 11 things uh, up there. I also made a playlist, Socialism and Religion. Um, if you didn't love it, you know, it's not the last thing we're going to cover on the channel. All right. Religion can pose a counter-revolutionary danger. See Operation Paperclip. Now, Paperclip was bringing the Nazis over. Why are you linking religion to that? I'm just not aware of the connection. Getting double time in the factory while listening. There you go. I, thumbs up to that. Yeah, speaking of the mid, mid to late 30s, the Finnish Bolshevik has a good series on the Moscow trials. Um, yeah, I know Stalin died in his 70s. I did mean Lenin. Did I say Stalin? Lenin died in his early 50s, like way earlier than uh, would be expected. I have watched um, at least part of that Finnish Bolshevik series on the Moscow trials. I think it's three videos. I can't remember if I finished the whole thing or not. I may have. <clears throat> but I think that the thing that stood out that people were remarking on was uh, the Trotskyists tried to make it out like they just didn't really get a fair hearing and so on. The reality was that the party actually did listen to them for like a surprisingly long period of time. So, anyway, that was one of my main takeaways. Uh, what's up with Trotsky being a possible Nazi collaborator? Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. I haven't really gone into that. I mean, I made up my mind I'm not interested in Trotskyism. And I've heard that allegation. I, I don't know of the details on it. Somebody says, socialism. Socialism, I thought that that wasn't relevant anymore. Well, we still live in capitalism, which is a system of class rule uh, that is ruled over by a tiny minority of people who extract wealth out of the overwhelming majority of the population, another class, the proletariat, and there's going to be conflict between those classes for as long as this minoritarian system of rule and exploitation persists. So no, that's definitely relevant. Um, yeah. Is the union fighting for the gig workers to pay less taxes? Because I work Instacart and DoorDash, and I hate those taxes I have to pay. They're way too high. I don't uh, know anything about that. But um, as far as uh, what we're talking about with class struggle, um, taxes sometimes figure into that. <clears throat> Our main concern, uh, usually the taxes, more of a bourgeois, petty bourgeois complaint, um, that, you know, uh, too much is being taken out of their profits. Um, anyway, it's just, it, it's kind of amazing how people pick up these talking points, but it's more of a libertarian 
um, talking point. What, what we're talking about is surplus value extraction, the exploitation of workers by the employer. So like when you work Instacart and DoorDash, you're basically providing services that were outsourced to you, um, you know, by various companies, uh, rather than treating you as like a proper employee with all the rights that go along with that, um, and strengthening you in, in a position to work and eventually fight alongside other proletarians, uh, you are treated as this independent contractor and it, you know, furthers the illusory petty bourgeois consciousness. You think you're sort of like a little businessman. You're not, you're an exploited worker. Um, Basically getting paid far less than the value you're generating. That theft, that exploitation is much greater in comparison to what's going on with the taxes. So that really should be your primary concern. Speaking of AC, I, hold, I heard that only 30% of Texas prisons have AC and people are dying of heat exhaustion in prison there. Yeah, um, I don't know what else to add, but yes, that's true. This is, of course, on the heels of COVID. So, so far, actually, that reminds me of COVID. We, so far, are having a lull in COVID. It's far from over, but um, we're having a... Uh, lesser COVID year this year than we've had the last, uh, well, at least last year. Let me bring up the current biobot situation. But we are having a a surge right now. Let me find the thing. Here we go. So this is from biobot.io, B-I-O-B-O-T dot I-O slash data. And this was just updated yesterday, July 24 from samples collected last week, the week of the 17th. So as you can see there, um, since January 2022, which is the big spike in the middle, you can see that the rest of 2022 had enormous amounts of SARS-2 virus being detected in the wastewater. So we had an enormous amount of cases um, of, of COVID that weren't being detected through tests necessarily, but you can see it easily through the wastewater. You're not going to get SARS-2 virus in the wastewater unless it's infecting people. So clear, clear indication that last year we had a record amount of uh, SARS-2 spreading. Those were the Omicron variants. Now what happened this winter is that the XBB strains became dominant. This was XBB.1.5 has been uh, dominant. But then there's a lot of different mutations, variations of the XBB, which uh, all of them are like 8 to 15% dominance and it's varying. So there's not like one particular variant that is outshining them all and driving a huge wave. So what we've had for like the last six months is a fairly sustained, well, not six months, but four months maybe, a sustained lull. However, even that lull is much higher than the lull that we had in 2020 and the lull that we had in 2021 and the lull that we had briefly in uh, early spring, late winter 2022. So as lulls go, it is the highest lull um, that we've had. Then if we zoom in a little bit more closely on what's going on uh, currently, 
<coughs> with the BioBot. Bring this up. There we go. So here's the last six months. You can see it's kind of leveling off again for the moment, but there was an uptick. So we are at about 250, 260 uh, copies of virus per milliliter of sewage. That's well above, like I said, the 2020 or 2021 lulls, which were more like 100. So we're like double the resting level of COVID that we were at two years ago or three years ago. So much more COVID is circulating. Now, we do see that there was an uptick recently. Not that surprising. I think that this is maybe putting us onto a similar pattern to what we saw in 2021, where the Delta strain came in. But again, none of these um, XBB strains is leading like a super breakout uh, wave. But if we uh, zoom in a little bit more, oh, did I not get the zoom in? Tell me I didn't get to zoom in. This is the regional one. Oh yeah, I didn't get it. That's a shame. Okay, well anyways, you can see this map, monitoring by region, breaks it down. The orange is the northeast, which historically has been leading most of the waves. Um, and then the southeast being pink. You have to take my word on this because I didn't get the uh, graphic. But those two regions are still ticking up. I think that the Northeast is <clears throat> around 350 copies. Right now, the West and the Midwest, the green and purple regions, are declining slightly after rising, then plateauing. They're declining slightly for the moment, um, but the Southeast and the Northeast are rising, driving that wave that we saw again on the, um, the overall, I'll put the, the six-month uh, chart back up driving yeah the um that uptick that we've seen the reason it leveled off is that the west and midwest started to sink canceling out in the national average the northeast and southeast continuing to rise but the northeast and southeast so far showing no signs of turning around continuing to rise so we may be looking at another wave i think it's likely um, but like i said even as lulls go, this is not a particularly good lull because there's no masking. There's really no protections at this point. You'll go out in public, find maybe one in 100, one in 200 people actually masking. So anyway, just um, checking in on the COVID situation there for a minute. Uh, I thought of that because people have been dying in prison with total lack of COVID protections as well. Um, really brutal conditions in... Um, in uh, U.S. prisons in many, many different ways. Uh, you know, if it's not the COVID, it's the heat. And um, I don't know, I'm at a loss for words as far as like, you know, that there's not a bigger movement around that. Any kind of abolitionist work that you can get involved in, do see what you can do with that because it's, uh, I don't know what else to say. All right, I know it's a bit off topic, but after the reading guides are complete, what's the future going to look like for the S4A channel? Also, another comment, Hassan sucks. Okay, so future of the S4A channel. I actually have really been consolidating the reading lists recently. Now, people are always suggesting other things, but I feel like for the first time, 
I've been working on my collection of offline audiobooks. It's another reason I love Marxist Internet Archive, by the way, despite that they are Trotskyist and they put in Trotskyist commentary all over the place. The website, being simple HTML, um, or sometimes it has like CSS and stuff like that, but it's at least not, you know, real complicated formatting. Um, it saves easily offline and then I can just sort of go through and arrange my files um, you know for 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 when I do the recording and sometimes I'll just spend hours doing this like sizing up my files and being like what kind of topics do I have here what kind of series what patterns jump out at me you know what collections can I put together and so on <clears throat> so the basic Marxism Leninism reading guide has three well really four more texts to it Anti-During Part 2 by Engels, Capital Volume 1 by Marx, and Imperialism, The Highest Age of Capitalism by Lenin, then optionally, but I will be doing it, The uh, Re Theory of Reconstitution of the Communist Party by Movimiento Anti-Imperialista. I feel like after um, doing their reading list, the least I can do is, uh, is uh, read that essay of theirs, get some of their thoughts in on this whole thing. But uh, after that's done, I mean, there's a lot of other things to do. So off the top of my head, we're going to uh, do a series on Rosa Luxemburg, a little bit from Carl Liebknecht also. The two of them were uh, organizers of the Spartacist League and basically the like attempt at a German revolution in 1919. Um, or was it late 1918 to January 1919? Anyway, that that one, uh, those uh, Spartacists. Um, mostly Rosa Luxemburg, though, in that collection. And then also Militarism and Anti-Militarism, I think, is the Carl Liebknecht text. So there's going to be at least a month, maybe two months worth of that. Um, after some concluding texts there. And, you know, there's some tie-in. Like, we'll do the Unius pamphlet by Luxemburg, but then also Lenin's response to the Unius pamphlet. And then um, some remembrances, like Claritz Etkin wrote a lot of remembrances of Rosa Luxemburg. We'll read some of those. But we're going to kind of do a Rosa Luxemburg section, and that'll be pretty much August and September, I think. After that, I'm going to come back to the uh, basic Marxism-Leninism stuff. What I have there, in addition to Anti-During and uh, Capital Volume 1, I mean, if you're going to do Capital Volume 1, you got might as well do Capital Volume 2, 3, and 4, um, and uh, some related pieces around that. For example, Rosa Luxemburg, speaking of Rosa Luxemburg, also wrote um, her theory of the accumulation of capital, the, uh, the anti-critiques, and... Um, going to read those as well as a couple of pieces about that because she had you know her thoughts on the accumulation of capital which turned out to be more controversial than she expected them to be and um, things like that you know that just tie in with capital but also in that series I have kind of a, a collection of texts which um, I think of as Marx and Engels non-economic texts so there's kind of a lot of short, random pieces. Like, again, a few of them happen to be about religion, so I put them into, like, a religion mini-series. But there was, um, you know, that uh, anti-church demonstration in Hyde Park thing from Marx, 
which is like a 20-minute audiobook, but it's an interesting article that Marx wrote. There's a bunch of stuff like that, like maybe 30 or 40 of those that are short Marx and Engels texts that you might not hear anywhere else. Like, for example, people might know The Poverty of Philosophy um, by Marx, which is a big criti critique uh, and almost like satire and skewing of the philosophy, philosophy of poverty. But there's a shorter piece on Proudhon by Marx as well. And like, we'll read that. I'm not going to bother with um, the poverty of philosophy at this time just because it's so long. Um, similarly, like, I'm not going to do the Holy Family because there is a mechanically read uh, version of that and it's like 10 hours long. And it's like, okay, well, I just don't have 10 hours to spend on that when I could do 15, you know, half an hour short things and like the, with the same amount of effort um, that I think more people will actually listen to and will get more out of anyway. So there's a, a whole series as we wrap up the uh, Marx and Engels stuff, you know, kind of 30 or 40 things there of shorter pieces. And then there will be the remembrances of Marx and Engels. Then we will move on to a lot of Lenin stuff that I have not read. Um, significant Lenin pieces that, you know, people have probably seen if you're doing a fair amount of reading. Um, there's a bunch of Lenin stuff that I want to get done. Again, probably not the real long stuff on these passes. There are some Lenin things that, um, like, uh, oh, what is it? Um, the 1899 one, it's like the history of the development of capitalism in Russia or something like that. Looks very interesting. Again, there's a computer-read version. It's like nine or ten hours. So what I'm going to do on this pass is many um, shorter, that is up to about an hour and a half, texts from well-known people, you know, Luxembourg, Lenin, Marx and Engels, um, and then kind of cap that off for a while. From the Lenin stuff, you know, and after remembrances of Lenin, you know, Stalin's writing on the death of Lenin and stuff like that. Going into that early USSR 20s and 30s period, uh, the conflict between Trotsky and Stalin and the general fight against, you know, Bukharin and sort of others that were uh, opposing uh, Stalin at that time. Then a section on the Chinese Revolution, so a lot of Mao. Um, I have another little mini series that I will slip in somewhere, maybe at this point, maybe not but which is um, just a number of texts on dialectical materialism by Cornforth, by David Guest, by Mao, like by a lot of different people just happening to be writing on the subject of dialectics specifically. There turned out to be a lot of things in the collection that were kind of on this topic. So again, I made <clears throat> kind of a mini series out of it of like maybe a dozen or 15 texts. I also have another collection of stuff that is pertaining to the USA. So there will be William Z. Foster, there will be Eugene Debs and other things like that pertaining to socialist struggles in the U.S. Um, the last few sections, and the reason I can recall these all off the top of my head is because I was numbering them, which really helps. Because <laughs> now I'm on number seven in my head. Uh, number six was the USA stuff. Number seven um, was uh, post-revolution China. Um, or no, no, sorry, actually... A little bit of post-revolution China, but the main thrust of seven was post-Stalin USSR. So basically the Khrushchev years and the Sino-Soviet split. So China's criticisms and like Hoja's and others' criticisms of post-Stalin 
USSR in the 50s and 60s, um, and just general criticisms and, and the fight against revisionism in the later 20th century USSR. Um, then some things on the Sino-Albanian split and criticisms of uh, Dungas' third world theory, so kind of more the Hojist stuff and some Marxist-Leninist Maoist stuff. Those are like uh, sections eight and nine. So that's kind of what I've got. There's also a few other miscellaneous readings. We're also doing the Homeless Industrial Complex playlist. And I, the last one I put up was in like March, and I really apologize. I'm wanting to do that. I'm stuck on a very long reading. And I just can't seem to get it done, and it's holding up the entire, just the entire playlist. So, yeah, Homeless Industrial Complex playlist will continue. Um, I've got to just bite the bullet on that one. But, see, it's hard for me, too, because I feel like I'm constantly trying to keep the channel happy. Um, and I feel like not posting for two weeks because I'm recording, you know, an HIC reading isn't necessarily it. But I don't know how else to get these done. It's the same reason Anti-During got held up for so long, too. So anyway, I mean, I think that there are years, there's at least two years, maybe three, in what I was just, you know, recounting there. And that's not even everything. That's not even all the major works. But what I think is that that will take us about up to the five-year mark for the channel. Probably after that, I might start doing more guides and things like that. You know, in other words, we, we, I've been trying to teach theory from the perspective of annotated audiobooks. In other words, let's read it together and I'll explain it and you can kind of make your own notes. Um, probably after that point, you know, after I've gone through a lot of the uh, first five years of a lot of these primary readings, um, from then branching out into things we haven't done as much of, in particular, maybe doing some of, you know, my own guides and breakdowns to particular topics, now that, you know, after having done all the reading. Um, but also, I think, getting into more history books. And I was mentioning this, I think, on the last stream. Um, rather than just primary texts, reading and probably not doing audio books of, but doing reviews of and extensive sort of book, book reports, not just book reviews, but book reports on history books. Because the difference there, you might be asking what's the difference between a primary text and a history book, is that a primary text is, you know, Lenin writing about his perspective on this and that. A history text will look at that same period of time and incorporate multiple sources, one of whom might be, you know, Lenin, but many other sources. Um, there's a historiographical method for constructing a historical narrative that incorporates multiple sources. And after getting through, you know, a lot of the basic theory and reading those primary sources for five years, then getting into the history for maybe five years, because there have been many different histories of socialist and labor struggles written by both people sympathetic to, neutral to, or quote, neutral to, and um, hostile to uh, proletarian victory and uh, communism. <clears throat> so... Anyway, that's, I, I hope, that's sort of my rough sketch of like 10 years of the channel divided of five years of primary stuff and reaction videos, and then five years of kind of more history and guides and writing more of my own stuff, I guess, but we'll see how it actually turns out.
but yeah, I definitely have like at least another year and a half of uh, just primary stuff already lined up that I would like to read. You know, and I will say also, um, it gets a bit frustrating for me sometimes doing the channel, putting up the audiobooks, and then seeing people, and I, I know there's just going to be unthinking people that do this regardless, but it does always bother me. People putting up comments where it's like, did you even listen to the text? You know, people just like, oh yeah, Lennon said this, but uh, I'm just going to wing it, like based on nothing. They have like no other evidence. They don't support another reasoning process. But they're just like, yeah, but whatever, we're going to do something else. And it's just like, are you here to study or like, what? what's the deal? Uh, if you're going to put it, put up a counter to it, at least provide some support for your position. It's just, I feel like I'm, I'm just making, you know, uh, things for just completely unthinking people when I get comments like that. It's frustrating. All right. Uh, Anarcho-communism is just another reaction against the history of socialism and labor around the world and even in America. I don't know if it's just another reaction, but it's um, not nearly as effective a, a way of struggle. I'm sure that some people do view it as like something that they can weaponize. I do think other people honestly think that it's more liberating or something. I also honestly think those people are wrong, and I'm happy to have a discussion about that. I think that there is solid evidence, again, going back to Marx and uh, Engels' time, that like yeah, there have been solid crit criticisms of anarchism for good reason uh, the, the whole time. And it's like, these are very, very old discussions. But again, a, a lot of people, you can assume it's deliberate, but a lot of people just don't do the reading, so they're unaware. <laughs> you know, you'll see people running around on social media like, Marx was an anarchist. Anarchism is totally compatible with Marxism. What? No, it isn't. Like, have you done any re Like, what are you basing this on? You can't just make shit up. But yet, there are a lot of people making shit up. So, yeah. That's a major reason I do do the texts, is because then you put the resources out there, people can actually, you know, stand a chance of knowing what the fuck they're talking about, and not just keep doing the same mistakes over and over. I love the commentary. Good. I think more people do than don't, so... Yeah, good. No, I'm getting a few comments about the, about the com comments on comments. There you go. Comments within comments. Wolf is textbook revisionist. Yeah, I think of Richard Wolf, and I made a video, a few videos about this. I think he's more of an anarchist or mutualist than a Marxist or Marxian. I uh, really don't think he is a Marxist. I think he's really, really more of an anarchist. But he did get me into socialism post-Bernie. Yeah, um, but, but now you're here. You know what I mean? Like, let's say that there hadn't been communist YouTube channels like S4A out there, and you had just had Wolf to go on. Like, where would you be now? Would you have given up on it? Because I know for me, you know, going through that sort of uh, ANCOM thing, I didn't really know where to turn uh, you know, to sort of go beyond it and to move past what I was realizing more and more were the, were the errors of it. Just read some stuff on Marxists.org about what Dimitrov wrote. I agree with most stuff except the Marxist jargon. Excuse me, but what Marxist jargon are you talking about? He was literally the head of the Communist International. How do you agree with it except for the Marxist jargon, which is kind of fundamental to what he's saying? I'd just like to understand what you're saying here. 
Why was the Northeast so particularly bad in 2022? That spike is insane. Um, it's cold and there's a lot of people that live there. So a lot of indoor air, New York City, you know, unlike the um, other more northern parts of the U.S., the Pacific Northwest, the sort of, uh, you know, northern Midwest. I mean, that whole area of like the Pacific Northwest, Montana, Idaho, the Dakotas, like very few people live there. And in the Northeast, you have New York, Philadelphia, Boston, pretty big cities. So that's that's why. And then other places, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, a uh, lot of people live there. So that's that's why the spike is so bad is it's one of the colder areas of the country and a lot of people live there. I'm not a Marxist or communist, but I would like to learn more about it. Okay, well, you're in the right place. Uh, go to youtube.com slash socialism for all. We have a lot of videos discussing it. Um, you can also ask questions here if you'd like. The idea is for more people to learn about it, so there, there you go. And by the way, I just thought your comment about agreeing with stuff except the Marxist jargon was funny because... Um, it's just foundational to what he said. So I just I'm just wondering how a person agrees with what he's saying without agreeing with the Marxist stuff because it I think it's all Marxist stuff. But anyway, yeah, foreignlanguages.press is is another good site. They do in-house versions of audiobooks of a lot of their things. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, how do you see the abolition of private property implemented? How do you transition from a, the capitalist structure we now have to a Marxist socialist system? Uh, I agree we have to change the status quo since it is unsustainable. So the basic process of class struggle under capitalism is for the revolutionary proletariat, which proletariat means propertyless wage workers, uh, people who really don't own anything or don't own capital. Um, don't really own anything except for their own labor power, which they sell to capitalists in order to live. That's wage work. Um, proletarians getting organized into labor unions, um, fighting, striking uh, for increased class power so that the balance of power within the industries shifts away from the capitalists to doing more of what the workers want, implementing more of the workers' demands. Political consciousness needs to be developed alongside this so that not just um, the conquest of industry through, you know, industrial unionism, for example, uh, you, you get that on the shop floor, but you also need to make preparations through a workers' party for the conquest of political power. Eventually, um, workers get strong enough and the strikes get big enough that the balance of power shifts entirely. The capitalists actually wind up in a position where they have less effective day-to-day -day power than the workers do because the workers as a class um, are, are so organized and class conscious and militant um, that they're able to shut down the economy, redirect production, and also they have the political force ready to set up a worker's state in place of the bourgeois state or capitalist state, bourgeois is a synonym for that. Um, and then, uh, just like, I mean, how was the United States founded? There was a revolutionary war. 
Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a war. Um, we'd prefer if it isn't. We'd prefer the capitalists to just say, we give up, okay, you guys win, take over. In practice, they don't usually do that. They'd rather drop a nuclear bomb on you. So, um, you know, we fight until we win uh, because, yes, as you said, the status quo is unsustainable. Um, there's a rough overview. Uh, Marxism-Leninism is Marxism in the age of imperialism and proletarian revolution. was developed about a century ago, um, and there have been a number of proletarian revolutions since 1917. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're living in a period of counter-revolution where capitalism, global imperialism, has uh, been beating back the workers' movements and gaining power again. But this will only go so far. Um, workers are too educated and um, have too many tools at our disposal to remain down forever. And we will reorganize and we will fight and we will win. So, you know, and the important thing to understand is capitalism has existed for a few hundred years. Before that was feudalism. That existed for a relatively longer period of time, but also society changed more slowly in those days. And before that was the slave state, so like Rome and, and stuff like that. So there have been different modes of production over time, and they all have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Capitalism is uh, nearing its end. But it is ended by organized workers, so that's that's a brief overview. Become the Dan Carlin of communism. Who's Dan Carlin? Uh, I read a bit about dialectical materialism. Do Marx and Engels mean that you can only derive knowledge from the sense of living through practical ideas? I'm not sure I quite get that, but so they are, for instance, against thought experiments as a means of acquiring knowledge. Are they reacting against the Enlightenment ideal of reason? No, not at all. Um, dialectical materialism should be understood in relationship to... Actually, so we put a, um, a two-hour audiobook up on the channel just recently that I would point your attention to. The name of it is... just want to get the exact right name. Ludwig Feuerbach and the End of Classical German Philosophy by Engels. It's in like the fourth or fifth row of videos if you go to the YouTube channel and scroll down. So when Marx and Engels are talking about dialectical materialism, they mean dialectical as opposed to metaphysical. Uh, metaphysics in this sense is a philosophical trend which tends to regard ideas as static and existing sort of as isolated things in themselves. Dialectics refers to an interconnected web of causality where no individual phenomenon exists in isolation. It's a, every, what seems at any one point in time to be a thing is actually a process. And what might seem not to be connected to anything else is in fact interconnected in a big web of causality with many other things. So the dialectics means that things um, are always existing in relationship to other things and shouldn't be understood as static in the metaphysical sense. The materialism stands in opposition to idealism. In other words, there was kind of this split among philosophers, particularly Hegel and then after Feuerbach, um, that 
idea, uh, idealism in this sense is that ideas come first. Ideas are what shape reality primarily and that uh, material reality is subordinate to ideas. Uh, materialism says no, uh, material reality comes first and as we are thinking matter, we generate ideas and ideology um, that basically support material existence, but that material life comes first idealism is you know or ideas obviously exist but they're secondary to material reality just in in understanding the relation or the the dialectic between material uh things and the world of ideas in that dialectic the material is takes precedence so dialectical materialism is understanding the material world as dynamic processes in an interconnected web of relationships of causality with each other. This is like basically widely accepted by science now, but what Marx and Engels were trying to do was apply this into the social sciences realm and trying to break through the dusty old philosophy, religion, and ruling class ideology that was holding people back and develop a scientific socialism. So there are kinds of sociology now which are, are scientific but they also have the class ideology or the class lens of the bourgeoisie. So we might call them bourgeois sociology. Um, we're primarily interested in looking at things through a class lens, although other kinds of um, division, you know, other kinds of bigotry, nationalism, sexism, things like that, uh, are also uh, used by the bourgeoisie to, to influence society significantly for their own benefit and so you know when evaluating bourgeois socialism um, that is not primarily uh, talking about class interests that's just something to keep in mind it's not to say the other things don't have an effect or don't aren't important bourgeois sociology uh, is never going to tell you that there needs to be a proletarian revolution for example even though that is pretty much the obvious conclusion anyone can draw from studying uh, the development of history in the way that Marx and Engels did. So, yeah. Next comment. I would be anarchist if not for S4A and Hakeem, Wolf, and podcasts like Behind the Bastards and Jackman. Oh, sorry. I would be anarchist if not for S4A and Hakeem, period. Wolf and podcasts like Behind the Bastards and Jacobin funnel people into anarchism. I think Jacobin also funnels people into reformism and, like, sock them stuff too. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up regarding the COVID spike in the Northeast. Is there a Marxist dictionary for common terminology? Um, Marxists.org does have a glossary. There will be a Trotskyist bent to it, but yeah, if let me get the address for you. <clears throat> I do often use it, although again, you got to account for the Trotskyism. Marxists.org slash glossary slash index.htm will get you to the page. There's probably also a link off of like the front page. And yeah, it's pretty useful. Um, it's pretty useful. Although again, when they start talking about Stalinism, big grain of salt, get, get out your salt shaker. Uh, stuff like lumpen proletariat. I still don't really know what you mean. Lumpen proletariat was um, a term used by Marx to refer to the, quote, dangerous classes. That is, people who were not capitalists, not rich, 
um, and basically just made their living through like pickpocketing and kind of other just like criminal activities, um, riffraff kind of thing, which wasn't just a way of, uh, you know, looking down on people, but it, like, it wasn't just, uh, oh, you're poor, I'm going to call you riffraff. It was specifically people who had taken up sort of swindling as, as a lifestyle, but who were not capitalists. And he described, for example, in 18th Brumaire, these were some of the people supporting the reactionary forces. It's kind of like when we talk about decay in uh, the fascist stage of capitalism, um, some of the just kind of scummy shit that working people turn to. So anyway, I think uh, I, I personally think that lumpen proletariat is like very much overused today and that people distort its meaning radically. I think there was a very clear meaning that um, the, the way that Marx was using it, you get kind of a, I think, a very clear mental image of who he meant. And I, I think that the term is overused today. There's like people talking about homeless people as lumpen proletariat. Okay, most homeless people in the U.S. are proletarian. They just don't have a house. They're not lumpen. Lumpen is like rabble, like in the sense of dangerous uh, or like a, a specifically criminal element. Um, it's just, and people who make their living that way, it's not necessarily uh, just people who are like really down and out. Um, not everybody who's down and out turns to like pickpocketing and drug dealing and whatever. And again, there's, there's a difference I think that I think even Marx would make. Um, that I definitely would make between, you know, selling cannabis where it's illegal and then increasingly now it's becoming decriminalized, which is wonderful. Um, far, far, far safer overall than like alcohol, for example. Um, bet, like flat out good for you in, in certain respects when used within limits like any substance. But, um, you know, there's there's kinds of there's things that are illegal that victimize nobody, and then there are things that are illegal that do victimize people, like theft and things like that, um, where somebody loses personal property as a result of the crime. <clears throat> I think Marx would make that distinction, and to me, it seemed more like, uh, you know, victimizing crime seemed to be more of the lumpen proletariat. I, again, it's it's not a term anyone ever bothered really. Um, defining in a hard way because I think Marx was just using it to paint a picture rather than do hard analysis at that point. I think it's a mistake to actually apply that term too rigidly. I know that there's this whole theory coming out of like the Black Panthers party of the um, the uh, and it actually isn't just I, I think it's Marcuse as well uh, promoting the idea of the um, revolutionary potential of the lumpen proletariat over the proletariat and this is completely wrong i think the reasoning that it's founded on is 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 also completely wrong um but yeah i think people really really abuse that term anyway i think that the nature of fascism how militant it is and how it leads to war uh they're trying to solve the problem of markets by enslaving the weak nations that is why they need fascism uh yeah, it reminds me of Lebensraum. Yeah, Lebensraum being living space for the for the German nation under under Nazism. Yeah, I mean, so you can understand fascism as the ideology of advanced capitalism. It's the ideology of of capitalism in the imperialist phase. Imperialist capitalism is di distinct from early phase capitalism, 
where there's lots of capitalists um, fighting against the existing feudal order, just struggling to like eke out their system, and it's not very consolidated, and there's a lot of petty bourgeoisie, smaller business people. And then later phase capitalism, when it becomes imperialism, is characterized more by highly consolidated enterprises, monopolies, and, and so on. And fascism is the ideology of the imperialist phase of capitalism. So it's not just a hard definition of like, it's a light switch. One day you're not fascist and then boom, it's fascism. It's a gradient. Uh, there's a process of fascization as your society becomes more fascist to as your society becomes more imperialist. It's not just a, a binary on-off thing. Have I checked the Juche Gang YouTube channel? It focuses on Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il's theories. I haven't really watched that channel that much. I have interacted with the Juche Gang guy on YouTube. We seem to get along and he makes good posts. So as far as I can tell, yeah, what I've seen from Juche Gang is good. Um, yeah, so there's another comment about fascism in Italy, uh, let's see, contextualized, I think he means all imperialism is fascist. Well, anyway, I think I just addressed that in that comment. So there's a process of fascization, not all fascism looks exactly the same, but it is the ideology of imperialism intended to run an imperialist society, so... Lenin would say to the working class in fascist or even in imperialist nations, a nation cannot be free if it oppresses other nations. That is correct. And by that, stand, uh, by that correct standard, the USA is very, very, very unfree. Yeah, so we're talking about definitions of fascism. I'll, let me give you a link here. We read this a while back in, in an earlier live stream. Um, the Class Nature of Fascism from Politsturm. Let me give you this article. We read it out previously. That is going into the chat. There it is. Check out that article when you get a chance. I think it'll clear some things up for you. Got pulled into a long work meeting. Yikes. Yeah, that was a while ago. Crime bosses themselves are more similar to petty bourgeoisie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a business. It's a business. Third way was usually used by fascists. Perón was the only leader I can think of that wasn't fascist and used that term. Um, yeah, I'm not going to get into a whole thing on Perón, but... Um, yeah, third way. The idea of the third way that the fascists put out was, you know, neither capitalism nor Bolshevism, that they have some other way of sort of resolving the class struggle. And it was basically just class collaboration, so basically just capitalism. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, there's a thing, lumpen, I thought lumpen meant disenfranchised. Lumpen was just a term, like, meaning, like, ragged kind of um so at the time in 19th century german people would use the prefix lumpen because german is a language of compound words they would say lumpen whatever you know lumpen uh i don't even know what 
but they would just put it as a prefix on everything. So anyway, lumpen proletariat became coined to describe, um, well, the lumpen proletariat. <laughs> so, oh yeah, there's also the um, Prolocult's film on fascism and decay. That's two hours long. Yeah, I would recommend that as well. So anyway, uh, we're about caught up with the chat and we're just about on time to do that. So if anybody else has any other questions or things that they'd like to get in, I think there were a few hiccup, hiccups in this stream. See, there's one now. I think there were a few hiccups in the stream, but not too many. Did I watch Oppenheimer? Fuck no. I'm not going to go sit in some COVID-laden theater uh, to let Hollywood brainwash me, no. I mean, again, not that, like, you know, all movies are fucking brainwashing. The amount of fucking, like, PR that Barbie and Oppenheimer are getting, I don't remember the last time they pushed two movies so hard. No, I mean, I generally, if, if everybody likes a movie, I generally don't like it. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not even slightly interested in spending, like, $15 or whatever to go watch Christopher Nolan, like, do atomic bomb worship. And I could not be less interested in watching the Barbie movie. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you're welcome. I mean, you you came in. Uh, so somebody, the person I was answering a lot of questions to, said, I would just like to thank you for the hospitality in the stream. Uh, we genuinely would like more people. There's a lot of misconceptions about socialism, class struggle, capitalist exploitation. Um, we genuinely need more people to understand this and I think more people will as as you did come to the conclusion that the status quo is unsustainable the thing that you find out when you go back through the history of class struggle you know the communist manifesto was 175 years ago what you find is that this shit's been going on the whole time like we're very much kept in the dark in the US about um the, you know, the history of class struggle, the history of socialism, the history of the struggle against capitalism. But that doesn't mean it hasn't been going on. And actually, a lot of the arguments we're having, you know, in the left or the working class generally today, they were already had a hundred years ago. Like, well, there's no need to reinvent the wheel if we will just learn history. So, yeah. And, you know, again, capitalism is capitalism. The logic of it is not extensively complicated. Um, there are certain parts of it, like I mentioned, it's more monopolies, it's more consolidated, and it's higher tech than it used to be. But the basic dynamics of it are the same now that they were a hundred years ago. Imperialism is still imperialism, class struggle is still cap, uh, still class struggle, and um, just overall, many, not all, but many of the dynamics are very, very similar. And uh, we always have to apply these principles intelligently to the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves but generally speaking a lot of the broad strokes are very similar yeah no I, I you know there's a comment I tend to be put off by stuff that's overly popular and I swear I'm not just trying to be different yeah I mean it's again if it if it appeals to most people I've just found it is likely not to appeal to me that much and that's just after watching Oscar bait movies over and over again for years. And it's like, I, I to this day, haven't seen uh, most of the later Tom Hanks things. <laughs> you know, like Castaway or like Apollo, whatever the fuck, was it Apollo 13? Um, 
I just I, I know I'm gonna get halfway through the movie and just be like what the fuck am I doing with my life because <laughs> that's just what always happens so yeah I, I'm just not in sync with sort of mainstream sentiment and that's what those things are all about so is there Oppenheimer in socialism or a Barbie movie do you mean is there socialism in Oppenheimer is there Oppenheimer in socialism or Barbie movie? what uh, I am studying history in a European university and so I got interested in modern day problems and politics you know that's exactly what I'm saying is we study the history and the theory which are based on each other um, in order to solve present-day problems that is like the whole point so I would like to understand the ideologies and the mode of thinking they're based on a bit better are you in a uh, Western European are you in a formerly socialist country or are you in a uh, like Western European country just out of curiosity there the Netherlands okay so Western yeah um, but yeah class struggle is gonna be coming to the Netherlands I mean you will get fascism first no doubt I mean all of the anti-immigrant stuff that very reactionary stuff um, you know th this is fascism taking shape and we see like in Italy recently uh, there was a, yeah also check out in the channels tab on the YouTube channel I have linked to a number of other channels there's another channel, Best D Marks, B E S D period Marks, has um, done videos on the rising Italian neo fascism. So, like, Italy just elected a prime minister who has been a lifelong member since, since age 15 of neo fascist parties, including the successor to Mussolini's party. So, we're seeing fascism in the far right making a resurgence. So, yeah, the more you understand these things now, the more you can pick the correct side in the class struggle. Ooh, modern macroeconomics. Oh boy. Um, you might want to also read Marx's Value, Price, and Profit um, as just a counter. Inoculate yourself a little bit. Also, um, Wage, Labor, and Capital. That will Those two combined will take you about four hours, maybe four and a half, and uh, you'll be able to inoculate yourself a little bit at least against macroeconomics which is more more religion and like hocus pocus than anything else. I'm kind of annoyed with all of the quote anti-capitalist media coming out. The best of it and probably the most sincere and genuine was probably Parasite, but it's kind of been downhill from here and it all just feels extremely grifty. Well, yeah, I mean most of the people involved in making these movies have no dog in that fight. They're fairly rich themselves. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, when you start seeing, okay, I may have made this point before, but there's a lot of young adult, um, like the Hunger Games, in the Hunger Games type of genre as well. There's a number of other things, the Maze Runner, like I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot of them, but there's this kind of new genre of young adult apocalyptic fiction where, you know, some teenager like, saves the world or something they're quite happy to show you that because it coincides with a petty bourgeois ineffective adventurist type of quote liberation of a superhero basically let alone all of the actual superhero movies 
what they're not going to show you is uh, movies about labor organizing, how to start a union, and so on and so on. There are very few movies at all that discuss unionization, let alone sort of show in gritty detail the whole process. So um, when we start seeing that, you know, maybe maybe I'll save my applause for that. But, um, you know, until then, I think it's just uh, selling people, you know, good feelings and, and uh, nothing that's really going to be too dangerous to the status quo at all. Um, I had another thought, which, what was it? Where did that, uh, where did that comment go? Yeah, the media's interest in radical politics is only to capture it and sell the idea, but then sort of split off from any sort of dangerously class consciousness inspiring um, portions of the content. And I love Parasite as a movie. I think it's very good. But again, it's not like a movie about mass struggle or anything. It's just sort of a, uh, you know, criticism of the rich and things like that. But it's, again, it's not like a successful mass revolutionary worker struggle, anything like that. I mean, there's the movie Reds, which I, I must confess I haven't seen the whole thing. Um, you know, but very, 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 very few movies will actually show anything like that. Are there any good Red Unions in the U.S.? Not really. Uh, there's the IWW, but it's very niche. Um, it's also completely poisoned by anarchist ideology, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, it's very small. I do have IWW organizing manuals up on the channel. If people want to hear those, there's one that's 20 minutes long, one that's like an hour long, and one that's three hours long that have different level of detail of how to do a DIY labor union, get something going in your workplace. But it's not a very big union. Um, they've done Starbucks organizing. They've done organizing at different fast food chains with some success, and, and, and that's to be applauded. But um, it's not a major, major union right now. It does hold out you know, some kind of a, uh, a placeholder, at least, for radical unionism. Aside from that, the UE, United Electrical, is kind of known as one of the more militantly democratic unions. Um, but yeah, no, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of good red unions in the U.S. right now. Seems like using the state as a weapon against various minority groups, a form of fascism, is the result of any capitalist polity where, when the people have so little power. Am I learning? Yeah, I mean, um, scapegoating people in such a way that you're substituting other kinds of conflict for class conflict, that's like a hallmark of, of fascism, for sure. It's also to keep, like in the U.S., um, where undocumented workers form a significant portion of the labor market, um, continuing a situation where they're so persecuted and have so few rights, it undermines the whole labor movement as a whole, which is kind of only as strong as its weakest link. So, you know, these are all examples of, like, uh, fascism sort of um, benefiting the capitalist status quo. Individualist stories in those movies for an alienated time. Yeah, I mean, again, breaking out of that sort of superhero, the lo you know, the, the chosen one mindset into movies oriented around mass struggle type plots, that's when you'll know something is actually changing, I think.
Spanish Conservative Party being elected again, Macron probably being being beaten by Le Pen. Macron, who is already right wing, being beaten by the neo fascist Le Pen. Agro fascism rising in the Netherlands. Yeah, so okay, there's a good example. The Dutch quote farmers protests. These are landowners. They're not like proletarian farm workers. Um, those are rich landowners that are staging reactionary demonstrations. And again, one of the hallmarks of fascism in its appearance is that it will copy elements of socialist rhetoric, elements of socialist aesthetics, um, but it will then have counter-revolutionary content. And, you know, that whole thing, we have a number of opportunist uh, media figures in the U.S., Jimmy Dore being one example, that were supporting those Dutch, quote, farmers' protests is like, what, you're not for the farmers? And, and the same thing in uh, Canada when they were having right-wing, quote, truckers' um, protests. It's the same thing. It's people that have some of the aesthetics of a working-class movement, but counter-revolutionary content. This is like pretty much how you get a fascist movement started. And we see that several years now underway. I mean, I think it started in the George W. Bush years, even with things like the Minutemen and all the anti-immigrant sentiment then. Uh, but there wasn't really the mass movement until the Tea Party and the birthers and, and now MAGA. Like, they're really consolidating that reactionary mass movement. And again, I say mass, it's not the proletarian masses. It's more of a petty bourgeois movement. But it's, it's people who aren't just in the country clubs, in other words. It's not just the richest of the rich. They're actually finding some support uh, out there in at least the 10%, you know, or 20% of, uh, you know, petty bourgeois people and uh, people with lower class consciousness. Means TV are ANCAP grifters, says a commenter. I haven't really watched enough of that to say, uh, so I don't know. Um, Andor is probably the closest to communist media we have in the U.S. Andor? I don't even know what that is. I've never heard... I've heard of Means TV. I haven't even heard of Andor. Okay. Marxist Paul did a sort of warning about that terrible and dangerous, quote, anti-capitalist film that came out that tried to adapt the book How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Oh, okay. So they have a video about that? Yeah, I... I know nothing about that. The most labor-oriented movie I can remember is Nine to Five. That was from the early 80s. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a fairly decent one that I can recall. Um, I don't know like what the fatal twist in it is, because they've always got to put something that undermines it in there. But yeah, I mean, there's a number of them. Norma Ray. Um, I like Gung Ho as a comedy. Michael Keaton's in that. Although... In the end, like what the union's fighting for is like pretty weak, and it plays into a lot of stereotypes about like American workers, um, and like unions in general being like lazy and things like that. So uh, I mean, was kind of funny aside from that, but um, yeah, actually, there's a book. I feel like I, I I have a stack of books. It's probably in here somewhere. I want to get the uh, the name of it right. It's in this stack of books. Let me look it up. It's Working Stiffs. 
So the author is Tom Zaniello, Z-A-N-I-E-L-L-O. And the title of the book is Working Stiffs, Union Maids, Reds, and Riffraff. And it's 350 movies that are like some kind of labor film with a discussion of them. So if people who are interested in movies, um, that book by Zaniello, there's a few other ones out there that are like, you know, another excellent labor movie is Matewan, M-A-T-E-W-A-N. Uh, less modern, it's like set about 100 years ago, but is about real world events and really is kind of more um, of the sort of mass struggle thing that I was talking about. Like that's kind of a more realistic look inside of a campaign that, that might have been going on at that time with the United Mine Workers and the IWW. And that's set in uh, during the Cold Wars um, in the 1920s, I guess. Socialist movie night would be pretty cool. Somebody wants to put that together. The pipeline video was nuts to see how much it was trying to get young radicals arrested, hurt, or killed. Now I'm going to have to watch it. I feel like, yeah, that, that may require as much discussion as we can get going on it. I love the part where it's like, don't worry about the FBI. <laughs> okay, sounds great. Yeah, so the, another fascist trope um, arising again currently is cultural Marxism, rhyming with Judeo-Bolshevism. Yeah, this is basically recycled Nazi myths. I see. I suppose a lot of people in the West, perhaps through the enforced individualism, mass-consuming, mass-culture, and unobtainable capitalist ideals that lead to a lost purpose, hopelessness, despair, I think that is a building block for fascism. Yeah, watch that video, um, Decay. I'll, I'll give you the link. Uh, Prolocult Fascism uh, Decay. I'll get the link for you in a second. But yeah, this is basically like, you know, the quote, moral decline. Well, it's as people are unable to actually provide for themselves, um, yeah, they tend to lose hope. <laughs> you know, provide for themselves, for their dependents. Here we go. Finally found it. Just kept giving me um, Patreon links for a minute there. There you go. There's the uh, decay on fascism documentary. I think that's a building block for fascism since these people mostly act on emotions. Yes, irrationalism and anti-intellectualism is another cornerstone of fascism. Um, the sort of mystical anti-science thing. That's why you see the anti-vax stuff and 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 you know covid denial aids denial and people like rfk jr um these people mostly act on emotions and would like the identity giving aspect of fascism in that military structure with the nation state uh well yeah it's it's unnatural it's a product of class society so um yeah, in other words, these people are desperately seeking some kind of conformity within... Um, they, they want something to belong to, because the their identity, um, the, the more traditional, and again, still constructed by an earlier era of class society, but relatively more traditional um, standards of identity and activities, they're no longer able to obtain them because capitalism 
as it continues to advance has eroded the foundation of those. So as capitalism continues to update material conditions, um, it then also has to update the ideology, but the ideology lags. And so people are looking back to like, why can't we live like we did in the 50s? Well, capitalism's at a different state of development. It has different needs for the working class. It needs you to believe different things now because it needs to use you in a different way. And it, you, it needed to use you in one way in the past. That's why it had you believe those things in the first place. It's all ruling class ideology, but it lags behind the um, material reality. Again, sort of proving the um, primacy of uh, the material reality. But then the ideology comes into play to help enforce that. I like to make the analogy between um, materialism and ideology that let's say you're crossing a street all right that's your material reality is both feet are in the street and there's a bus coming your way that's the material realities if you stand in that street the bus is going to hit you that's just the laws of physics that's what your atoms are going to do they're going to collide with the bus and uh you know due, due to electromagnetic force you're, you're not going to be able to pass through the bus you'll be squashed okay so that's your material reality the ideological component is yourself looking at that and forming the thought, hey, I need to get out of the road. There's your ideology. It lags behind the material reality, but it helps to influence the next stage of the material reality. So if you listen to that thought and recognize that to be a good and pure thought, then you will keep moving and you will get out of the road because you're going to get hit by that bus. So anyway, the ideology lags behind material reality, but we need to understand that the ideology being put out there is primarily done by the ruling class um, to, in furtherance of their continued rule. Now, in capitalism, as the proletariat forms as more of a class-conscious force, we also develop proletarian ideology. And, uh, you know, that is the revolutionary idea, uh, ideology of socialism. So, just putting it, putting it in context there. Richard Wolff supported the Canadian truckers. Yeah, he was supporting anti-vax shit and cops unions, too. Fuck Richard Wolff. I was watching Hitler, The Rise of Evil. Yeah, uh, and, and no doubt, it was evil. I mean, it grossly violated every known moral that most people, you know, hold. Um, but it's not, like, evil in some supernatural sense. Uh, 1919, Hitler was on the streets of Munich and saw a communist newspaper with a headline, Pride is a Weapon, and the next scene he appropriated that term for his speech. Yeah, this is like textbook fascism is co-opting socialist ideas for counter-revolutionary purpose. Metropolis is a silent black and white film that's pro-labor, watched in college. Rewatch that, my friend, because that is not pro-labor. Um, it deals with the subject of labor, but it is actually for a very reformist, pro-capitalist message in the end, because the um, the radical who is actually, spoiler alert, the radical who is uh, promoting revolution among the workers is shown to actually be an evil robot put out there to like sow discord. And the, the good heavenly message is actually that like uh, the... Uh, uh, what is it? The heart and the hand need to work in communication. The labor is the hand. The capitalist is the heart. And they have to like, or no, the uh, capital is the brain. 
the labor is the hands and they have to communicate through the heart I mean this is class collaborationism just blatantly so rewatch Metropolis it's it's actually very anti-communist I mean uh, Metropolis is known for its like stark kind of surreal imagery but the message fucking sucks The main problem I have with Marxism-Communism is that I don't think people are inherently good. Uh, that's actually not a contradiction. Marxists don't believe that either. Humanists believe people are inherently good. Marxism is not humanist in that sense. Um, it's kind of neutral on that question. People have intelligence and imagination. We have vast capacity for cruelty. We have vast capacity for kindness. We are also very social creatures in that people uh, on the inside are a reflection of the society that socializes them and the opportunities that they're given. So the idea of Marxism is to set up uh, a society that's free of class contradictions by abolishing the capitalist class and then just having everyone be proletarian, which is the direction we're already heading in capitalism. And then um, in a society that's free of class conflicts, you can do a lot more to have the average working person be set up with opportunities for a dignified life, with education, with work that's not going to completely run them down and kill them, with opportunities for recreation and all kinds of stuff. Um, so you know, Marxism-Communism doesn't think that people are inherently good either. It's trying to set up a society that's free of class contradictions, where people are given more opportunities to just work collaboratively. In other words, like I said, people have the capacity to, because we have intelligence and imagination, to be either you know very cruel or very kind or or or, or even indifferent and checked out. But it's kind of like the direction that you get socialized in that um, you know it's the material your material conditions that kind of shapes what ends up happening so we want to give people more good opportunities than are possible in capitalism anyway uh, people can't responsibly live in a commune well that's not really what communism is about per se um, the selfish gene convinced me of the opposite I mean that's reactionary ideology right there I also think our societal structure is too complex too complex for what? Uh, so the idea in socialism is that uh, the party makes economic plans, but that basically unions run the economy according to the plan. Um, there will be different implementations of that, but... Okay, and you also think that history is more random and doesn't have an endpoint. What's the endpoint? So if, okay, what we can see in capitalism is that the uh, the longer capitalism runs, true to Marx and Engels' deductions, uh, the longer capitalism runs, the class composition is more and more changed to whatever it was before, artisan, peasantry, whatever, into proletarian, dispossessed wage worker. All right? That's, that's true. So like the United States at the time of the Civil War, 150-ish years ago, um, was like 90% agricultural. Today it's 90% proletarian. So the class composition has changed in accordance with the basic principle 
or basic you know understanding that Marxism has of historical development that capitalism proletarianizes the population all right so that's true if capitalism proletarianizes the population even in the most backward countries eventually everyone will be proletarian except for maybe five to ten percent who are petty bourgeois though even that will shrink over time and then one percent are big bourgeoisie rich capitalists then you've got a situation where 90 plus percent of the population in a society based on private property has no interest in the prevailing order of private property what do you think will happen where we see that history um you know over and over again has a revolutionary class emerge and then become the new ruling class the prediction of marxism is that the proletariat this growing massive revolutionary class with access to the means of production will will take over society so what other quote random outcome do you think is going to happen other than that i think it's just a matter of time before that happens i mean it's a matter of organization as well but that that organization and people realizing that necessity is a matter of time what other random outcome do you think there will be and why Anyway, these are good questions, by the way. I thank you for bringing them up um, because, yeah, these are questions people have about Marxism. Michael Parenti has a video about movies, and there were a few movies he recommended. I've wanted to check them out. Maybe I'll do so if I put together a socialist movie night. Does anyone, does anyone here attend, or has anyone heard of Sunday Assembly? No, it's a secular gathering community. Most people I've met there are rational. Most are Marxist, or would be if you were to keep them talking. The branch I used to attend in Salt Lake was a way to organize. Ooh, Mormon country. Looking back now, it was a missed or underutilized uh, organizing opportunity. No, I haven't heard of Sunday Assembly. Uh, let me let me open a tab on that. Now that I've uh, closed all my Twitter tabs and gotten off of that, I've... Uh, First of all, my browser is crashing a lot less, but I have more room for uh, other good research tabs like that. All right, coming back to that. We are a network of secular, non-religious communities who gather to celebrate this one life we know we have. Okay, founded, oh, it's founded in 2013 in London, so it's pretty new. Might be why I haven't heard of it, but thank you for that. Didn't know Richard Wolf was supporting anti-vaxxers, too. Yeah, it was some really bad tailism. I forget exactly what he said. All right. And then the response to that, um, thank you so much. You guys changed my mind a bit about Marxists. All the people I spoke up, spoke to up until now were really pedantic, screaming that I had no understanding of history. So those people are very bad communicators. <laughs> Even if, uh, you know, what they were... Even if their understanding was right, they obviously can't communicate at all. So that's, uh, that's unfortunate. They were not representing Marxism very well at all. Um, I really like this discussion, listening to you guys and viewing a bit in your worldview. I see you identified the same problems as I did. I'm still skeptical about the solutions and how systems work. However, I realize I have a lot to learn. I'm eager to speak to you guys after I read a bit more. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, you know, I, I came to this whole thing a bit through a process of elimination myself. I, it seemed clear to me that no other... I, I considered a lot of other 
political options, in other words. And it seemed clear to me that nothing else really had any power to fundamentally change society along class lines in the way that actually need to happen. You know, I started out very interested in, like, uh, the anti-war issue. So this was about 20 years ago when the U.S. was invading Afghanistan and Iraq. And also uh, remilitarizing society with the Patriot Act and the jingoism, all the um, warlike nationalism under the Bush-Cheney years and the post-9-11, you know, radical sort of cultural counter-revolution of the post-9-11 era. I became very interested then uh, in what was going on and, and why. And eventually, you know, it took me a, a little under 10 years, but I eventually saw that um, it was socialism, a movement of organized workers that could actually stop the war, that could actually stop world hunger, that could actually stop pollution, etc. The capitalists, the people who currently control production, are never going to do that. They're bound by short-term profit needs above all else, and they cannot deviate from that, even if they know it's going to kill their system by killing the planet, because there's no profits on a dead planet, but they can't stop. We literally have to take it out of their hands. So it was that for me that all of these issues, the environment, war, hunger, poverty, and so on, it came down to which class has power, which class rules society. Then I learned that socialism is the name for the working class taking power in society. And I said, oh, well, you know, there have been a number of socialist experiments and revolutions so far, and it's been under extremely hostile conditions, a lot of adversity. Capitalists, imperialists have tried to undermine socialism at every turn, starve them, blockade them, sanction them, make it as difficult as possible for working people in control of their national politics to actually succeed and thrive. Absent that, I think the USSR would still be around and so on. Um, the class struggle would be, you know, we'd be in a really different place. The imperialists, that is the advanced capitalists, have proved to be a very tenacious enemy that is willing to use basically any method to keep socialism from working. And, you know, as we come out of this period of counter-revolution and extreme bleak reaction, as workers gain more power again, socialism is the destination. That's if we take power away from the capitalists um, and you have to completely take it away and then proletarianize them. That's how you create a classless society. Um, and then run the economy according to a rational plan that's, that's literally the only way out of it. And I saw the connection between war and pollution, poverty, all of it. Name a social problem, it comes down to which class is in charge. And are you running industry for profit or for use, for the general use of the population? You know, closing note here, tying this back into the last audiobook we put up, Socialism, Socialism in the Churches by Rosa Luxemburg. She makes the point in there that the early Christian communism was a communism based on the sharing or common ownership of finished products, of consumption goods, food, furniture, clothing, whatever. The difference between that and Marxist proletarian socialism of the modern type 
is our socialism is based on a sharing in common of the means of production of productive industrial equipment that's the point because the back in the you know ancient christian communist days who did the work it was slaves <laughs> somehow the slaves were not included in this plan of shared property that just magically appeared out of the blue <laughs> you know now, they didn't really ask the question who's making all this stuff that we're sharing but now in the modern age we're in a position to do that is we share the productive infrastructure but instead of running it for the profit of a few capitalists that legally own it and the courts and police uphold that ownership we run that just um you know we own it we own the uh the food factory whatever you know uh factory that makes bread pasta whatever we run that we say what do we need this month we need x loaves of bread we need x pounds of pasta crank it out boom you're not producing for speculative profit anymore you're not having the factory getting bought out by some competitive capitalist who's going to sell it off for parts i mean look at what elon musk is doing with twitter right now this is what happens it's just a very grotesque example and a very clear and obvious example of what happens when you let you know lone capitalists or even groups of capitalists just do as they please with what should be shared property that can only be operated properly by large groups of people so again that's that's it you know different socialist projects have had different contexts and tried slightly different things we're going to keep going until we get it right because if capitalism stays in charge they'll kill the earth and everyone on it i mean that's just the point we're at now the level of technology that we have it's potentially that destructive so aside from the poverty and aside from the war um, we we can't wait anymore with climate change and everything else so this is a must it's inevitable if we want a future for humanity it's a necessity but we do have to work and organize for it and fight for it all right we are going to leave it there we're actually caught up with the chat so this is all good timing thank you for the questions uh the kievit so yeah we're going to leave it there we're going to stream again on thursday same time Look for announcements on Patreon, YouTube, Blue Sky, and Mastodon. No longer Twitter for that. And uh, thanks. We'll see you in the next video.